you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? out of what's going on in the world today and come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet Radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 889 3675. So sit back, relax, and remember Southern Sense is common sense. first impulse. If your answer is running to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, 
southern-sense.com and click on the icon for My Patreon Food. Whoa. <laughs> oh, God. What a way to start the show. Good afternoon, everyone. Mm-hmm. You're here listening to Southern Sense here live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media. Oh, God. WCET Radio is probably going, what the hell is going on over there? <laughs> out of Charleston, not Charleston, Columbia, South Carolina. I don't even know where the heck I am. Columbia, <laughs> South Carolina, WCET oh, Radio. About it. Joe, oh God! Joe Biden, he really knows where he is. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! If anyone can mess up a wet dream, I can do that. <laughs> oh gosh! <I> Want to <laughs> welcome everyone that's listening here on Blog Talk Radio in the chat room as well as over on Facebook. Oh, this hey, we're starting off on a good foot here today, Curtis. <laughs> oh I my, see. my, my soap. My so patient and wonderful co-host Curtis C.S. Bennett. Hmm. Oh, I even I didn't even introduce myself, Annie. <laughs> you bellas, the radio f up, the radio chick, South Carolina. Oh, jeez. Oh, uh, I'm telling you, I I am absolutely absolutely wacko today. So please don't forgive me. <laughs> Just bear with me. Uh, we got ourselves a stacked program, Curtis. Uh, we're going to be starting off, and you know what? Black Lives Matter and the NFAC. Uh, guess what? If you are so worried about black lives and freedom, then you better talk to this man. Our first guest is a former slave. And actually in the world, especially out of Africa, there are 9.2 million men women and children in slavery, in active slavery today. And this gentleman, William Bol Guy Dang, was a former slave. He's now a proud U.S. citizen. He found his way to freedom, and he will be joining us uh, as our first guest. And then we're going to be followed by the author of Mastery of Change. He has his own podcast and YouTube channel, Seth Morgan. And we've got a guy that uh, obviously our my path has crossed with his over the years because we know a lot of the same people, such as Jerome Corsi and uh, Trevor Loudon, um, Vladimir Bukowski, uh, Jack Kasia. He has written a book uh, that has just been released called Unmasking Obama, the fight to tell the true story of a failed presidency. Uh, listen, Joe Biden, if you ever make it to presidency, you will be the one president that is even worse than Obozo. Uh, that will be followed by Anne, Dr. Ann Hendershot. She's a got the teeth and straight sociologist, professor, and author of a book that's being released. I think it was released just yesterday, The Politics of Envy. That's going to be really, really interesting, especially for those people mm-hmm. that are woke or triggered. And then from the Heritage Foundation, God bless the people over there. Every week they send us a wonderful guest, Giancarlo Canaparo, another paisano. Uh, He is with the Meeks Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. And he'll be talking to us about the uh, nomination to the Supreme Court, Amy Amy Comey Barrett. Um, So we got ourselves a... A, a full schedule on this show today. It's going to go wing bag boom. 
listeners. And it and, uh, likely turn- will, since we got some interesting topics to cover. It should go, oh. you know, pretty smooth. I mean, to the point we don't even realize, you know, three hours have passed by. Absolutely. And you know what? I don't know how we do it, but every every week, every show, just you we we are booked for three hours straight, and it yeah. seems like half an hour has passed. It yeah. goes so fast, so swift. But I want to welcome those that are joining us up in the chat room. Yeah, Annie's messed up again today. Don't worry. <laughs> Uh, but we will get through this, and this too shall pass. But uh, Curtis, you are broadcasting from lovely Philadelphia. You're in the center City of, of the brotherly swamp. love. <laughs> <laughs> like I said to you before we came online, I feel like I'm in enemy camp. I'm surrounded with lawns with um, Biden Harris signs all over the place. So, you know, I wish I had a little more time here. I could probably convert a few, but. I have to return home because I got to work the polls Monday. Oh, jeez. I don't know. Did you watch any of the town halls yesterday? There was one on NBC with uh, President Trump. And then an hour later, uh, it was on ABC with Joe Biden. Night and day. Night and day. And uh, I was yeah, I, I was watching watch it. it. I recorded I both of them. Of I was so back. I was going to go back and review them, but uh, Annie has been so exhausted. Uh, Actually, I I have some good news, Curtis, and I'm going to tell this online. Everyone that hears that knows that um, my husband has had um, health issues, one of which being cancer. Uh, We went up to MUSC, which is the Medical University of South Carolina, and he's been going there for his treatments. And we went up there for his last battery of tests, and oh, what a, what a, I can't wear a mask. So I have a face shield I wear, you know, just to, I have some sort of a face covering. They were not going to let me in. And after going back and forth, back and forth, they finally let me in, which made us like half an hour late for his appointments. But the people there were really great because once I got back there, I took the mask off immediately and just left the face shield on. And at one point I was helping my husband get dressed so I had no facial covering on. And they were walking in the room. <laughs> it's like nothing mattered. So it just goes to show how much BS this is with the face coverings. Anyway, we were on our way back. And it's like almost a two-hour ride back. And the oncologist mm. called us on the cell phone. And we got the results of his test that fast. I mean, we were on our way home. The tests were that fast. God bless these people at MUSC. He came back negative. No sign of the cancer. So thank you to everyone there that has been praying for us, especially for my husband. We're going to go back in two months for another test to make sure he's still free of it. So we have leaped one huge hurdle in our, our household here. So thank you, everyone, for all your prayers and good wishes. Prayers really do pay off. And we're living proof of that. So thank you, everyone out there. Yeah. And I'm glad I got the opportunity to see him the other day and yourself, even though yeah. briefly. Yeah. <laughs> that was a nice little stop. Well, we'll get to spend more time. And, you know, take a picture of wherever you hang that picture that, that we gave you up at. <laughs> I want to see okay. where you put it up. When I, re- oh, when I return home, I'll do that. Yeah, and give Carolyn a big hug and kiss from uh, the two of us. But uh, 
Ooh, no wonder why I slept so late this morning. It's like a huge load just came off the back. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, let's get on with the show. And those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to Commander Greg Carnicle of the Phoenix Police Department of Arizona. His end of watch was on March 29th of 2020. Actually, that's the date 40 years ago I married my first husband. It's a date I won't forget for this commander. And this is from CBS News. And it starts out, A Phoenix police commander was shot to death and two other officers were shot and wounded on Sunday, March 29, 2020, during a domestic violence call, police said. Commander Greg Carnicle was killed in the incident in a house on the city's north side, as reported by CBS Phoenix affiliate KPHO-TV. According to Phoenix Police, several roommates at the home got into an argument. The situation escalated and police were called. Carnicle and two officers were dispatched to the scene. Once inside, the suspect opened fire, hitting all three. The other two have recovered. The suspect was barricaded inside the house late that Sunday night, but more officers made their way in, sources told KPHO. Around 11.40 that night, sources said the suspect had been shot and was down. He died, KPHO said. The sources said the suspect had fired multiple shots at a police drone flying over the area. Phoenix Police Chief Jerry Williams said Connell was not only a colleague, but a friend. He was a 31-year-old veteran of the force. I'm sorry, he was a 31-year veteran of the force. Williams said she knew him for 30 of those years and worked with him at a local precinct. Phoenix lost a true hero, and that person is Greg Carnicle, she said. He survived by his wife and four adult children and was just months from retiring. In a tweet, Police said Carnicle held positions throughout the department, including Special Assignment Unit K-9, and he most recently oversaw all evening and weekend patrol operations. Phoenix Mayor Kate Gallego tweeted that, No words are adequate to, to express my sadness for Commander Carnicle's family and the Phoenix Police. After a decorated career spent keeping Phoenix safe, he and his choice of assignments, He volunteered to be a knight commander. This is the truest sign of the integrity of his character. And this is from 12news.com. The author is Mike Dodna. For the first time, we are hearing one of two Phoenix police officers who survived a shootout at a home in North Phoenix. Commander Greg Carnicle died that night while officers Marissa Dohan and Alicia Herbert were injured. Other than him not wanting to come downstairs, there was no blaring indication that what we were walking into, Alicia Hubert said, speaking with reporters for the first time since being shot. Officer Alicia Hubert, Officer Marissa Dohan, 
and Commander Greg Carnicle responded to a house near 40th Drive and Pinnacle Peak Road to a report of a roommate conflict. But when they walked into the house and started to head up the stairs, a man opened fire on the officers. I remember tasting copper in my mouth. A little bit of copper, Officer Hubert said. According to Hubert, she and Officer Dohan jumped from the stairway. Hubert was hit by two shots, once in the foot, another shot in her back. She said she had laid on the kitchen until she heard someone say Commander Greg Carnacle's name, who was still upstairs. Someone said his name to me, and that broke me out of, I've been shot, and moved into, other people have been shot, Officer Hubert said. Just that thought got me crawling. Hubert was rescued by other officers in the home who risked their lives to save hers. She was then taken to a hospital as her father, a 35-year veteran of the police police force, of the Phoenix Police Force, and now a reserve officer, Paul Hubert, learned his daughter was shot. It was just the worst fear, he said. The older Hubert expected the worst, but hoped for the best. Thankfully, the reality was closer to the latter for his daughter. I walked into the room and was able to see her with my own eyes that she was okay. See her laugh, see her cry, and joke about her toe. The injuries could have been much worse. According to Phoenix police, the bullet which hit Officer Hubert was stopped by an extra bulletproof plate given to Officer Hubert by her her dad a few days before the shooting. The two Huberts worked together on the Phoenix police force for about two weeks before Paul moved to the reserves. According to Phoenix Police Chief Jerry Williams, Carnacle was just months away from retiring after putting in more than 30 years on the force. The family released a statement through the Phoenix Police, which read in part, He dedicated his life to serve, protect, provide for us and for love. He was truly our hero and always will be. He touched many lives and many hearts and have now been broken. We are beyond thankful for our community. We appreciate the outpouring of kind words, and we hear your prayers. We know he will live on through the character and love he built in our community. Greg and I knew each other for 30 years, Williams said. As the evening progressed, there were text messages and phone calls to me about Greg, such as great leader, good man, loved his family, supported the police department. So those are the kind words that family members can gain some strength in during these difficult times. Carnicle held positions throughout the department during his career, including the special assignments to canine. And he most recently saw all evening and weekend patrol operations. It takes a special person last year to come to me and say, I want to finish my last year as of the duty commander or watch commander for our department, she said. As a 25-year-old, Greg Carnicle joined the Phoenix Police Force. In 1995, he became a sergeant. He would spend the next 25 years as a leader in the department. The two female police officers who were shot and injured have recovered.
Williams identified the two wounded officers as Marissa Johan and Alicia Hooper, both are legacy officers with the department. Williams said the 22-year-old suspect, who was being asked to leave, shot the three officers as they were walking upstairs. He was identified as Jacob Emery McElvin. Phoenix Police Spokesperson Sergeant Mercedes Fortune said there was no indication that McElvin was armed and would turn violent when the three officers initially responded to the call. What happened after that was nothing shy of pure valor and heroism, Williams said. We watched officers going in, not even considering what would happen with their own lives, expecting extracting Greg from the residence, as well as Dohan and Hooper. McElvin remained in the home after the officers were extracted for several hours before he exited the home armed, police said. That's when the officer-involved shooting happened and McElvin was pronounced dead at the scene. Fran Barnett, 96, a neighbor who lives directly across the street from the suspect's house, described the shooting as a war zone. When they came, the policeman said, you must get in your backyard. There's an active shooting going on, Barnett said. He took me out, out to the patio, and he said, you sit here and don't go back in your house. It sounded like a war zone. It really did. Police, Phoenix police posted on Twitter, Sunday night seems like a nightmare we can't wake up from. Commander Greg Carnegie was a beloved husband, son, father, grandfather, and so much more. He lived for the Phoenix Police Department and died doing what he loved. Today's show is dedicated to Commander Greg Carnicle of the Phoenix Police Department. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or first responders. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women who serve in our military, from the birth of our nation to today and into its marvelous future. We dedicate to all of them this song by Todd Allen Harrington. My name is America. May God bless each and every one.
brothers gave it to me. They believe in the virtues I stand for. I respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power. But they're vicious Welcome back to Southern Sense here live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star, Daily News, up on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, Streaker, whatever, WCE, WCET Radio. I still can't even get this right, <laughs> Curtis. <laughs> We've been hey, today is Friday. Oh, straight. <laughs> oh, just- man. You're- <laughs> oh, I'm the Radio Chicken D. <laughs> with my co-host Curtis Bennett. I mean, Curtis, I swear, every time we come on air, we do another show, stranger and stranger things seem to happen during the week. I mean, between the two town halls we saw uh, yesterday, uh, one with on NBC with President Trump, the other one on ABC, uh, anything but comedy, I'm going to call ABC, uh, with Joe Biden. I mean, and then we have what's the leaking of all this information, thankfully, from our buddy, Mayor Rudy Giuliani, uh, over to the New York Post about the Biden scandal that's breaking. I mean, it's getting crazier and crazier. I, I've never known a news cycle to be this nutso. Well, I believe that um, it's going to continue and it will intensify as we you know, get close to Election Day. Um, a lot of people on our side are nervous. I get emails and texts all the time wanting to know what I think. Do we still have a chance? And I have to remind them that, hey, remember 2016, even the night of, it was like 91% for Hillary. So we, we, we know how that turned out. But I also tell them, 
you know, forget the polls. Look at the enthusiasm, you know, asm level. I mean, Trump, this guy can pull anywhere from 25 to 30,000 people at a rally. Um, matter of fact, when he was scheduled to have a rally and then came down sick and was hospitalized, the people still came out in the thousands. And, and then he has, you know, these, these boat parades people, you know, who are supporters of the president are putting on. They have thousands of boats and things. And when you look at Joe Biden's side, I mean, he's lucky to um, get anywhere from 200 to 300 people to come to, you know, a rally. And then last but not the least, I think a poll came out recently that said 56% of the people felt they were better off today than they were, you know, um, four years ago. And this is during a, a pandemic. So, you know, it doesn't bode well for the left, no matter what the polls they're coming out with are saying. And, and I tell people this, and then they feel a little bit more secure about victory. Well, you know, I kind of like, like to gauge things on the way my mom reacts. I mean, uh, for listeners who don't understand when I, why I say that is that uh, my mom had been living independent for years. My father passed away seven years ago this month, um, and she'd been living completely independent down in the Caribbean, and she had a stroke back in the end of March. So I went down, flew her up here, and she's now been staying with me. And consequently, she took over my Archie Bunker chair. And we were watching the town halls last night. And Trump came on first on NBC, and we're watching it. And the woman that was supposed to be the town hall moderator was awful. My husband, my mom, and I are just yelling at the TV at her, like, who is this broad? I don't even know. I don't know her name. <laughs> Honestly, I didn't even, I, I disliked her so much, I didn't even take the time to look up what her name was, who she was. Savannah. That's how much, yeah. I didn't need to know that. <laughs> yeah. we, we were looking at the crowd, and they were wearing masks and socially distanced, but the room was full. It was at its, its capacity. I mean, considering social distancing, but there were people sitting next to each other. So obviously they came as you know, groups, um, but it was a pretty full room considering the pandemic. And then, oh, thanks, Holger. I really didn't want to know her name. <laughs> Holger posted it up in the chat room, Savannah Guthrie. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, Savannah there- from Louisiana. <laughs> Considering Arlo Guthrie was an extremely left communist liberal, I can understand. She must be of the same family. Anyway, uh, then we switched over, and Biden's town hall comes on on anything but comedy channel. Um, And we look in there, and there's five people. We counted five people in the audience. Trump had, what, maybe 30 people there? And he was battling Savannah Guthrie. And I have to admit that NBC it did something good, which I appreciated. And they had a, a Republican uh, ask a question, a Democrat ask a question, and an independent. And they would alternate. So it was, it was basically the audience was fairly balanced. And we switch over to these five people on ABC with Joe Biden. I'm going, wait a minute. <laughs> Even in a controlled liberal environment in their own controlled liberal environment Trump still garners a 
50% more larger crowd, or even, I I, I probably could say a 200% <laughs> larger audience. Yeah, I wanted to see what the ratings were. I haven't seen any ratings between the two. Well, it's... It, if, if, if anyone in the chat room has has a link to the ratings, please put it up in the chat room. <laughs> or anyone over on Facebook listening in, because we're up live on SHR Media uh, Facebook page, as well as my own Southern Sense Facebook page. <laughs> Just post the link, because I'd love to see what the ratings are. <laughs> yeah. So what did your mom think about it as a, a barometer? I, 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 she's going this woman who is this person that's asking these questions and she's just making all these faces and uh, god bless my mom yeah 88 years old and i i hear her actually coming down the hall with her walker so she's probably listening to me talking about her <laughs> but you know I, 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 when i look at her i can gauge you know because she's pretty much middle america and when I see her reactions, I can tell, you know, this is the way it's going to go. It's going to be a Trump landslide. It's going to be, and I coin that phrase, a ballot box revolution. All right. Now, Holger has put it up in the chat room, according to Variety, the 8 to 9 p.m. hour, when both titles, Biden drew 12.7 viewers on ABC. So Biden had more people, 2 million more people, according to Variety. Actually, Trump aired at 7. So if they're using the 8 to 9 p.m. hour, Trump was 7 to 8. So something's wrong with Variety's numbers. There's got to be something wrong. Don't you agree, Curtis? Did I lose you, Curtis? I had to think Tell me. It. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't believe that either, you know, I mean. No, no. Who would Trump want to watch Sleepy it. Joe? No, because I what was time watching. Did he come I because re- I I wasn't there at the beginning. What time did he did the, the um I want Trump? to say debate the town hall? What time did it start for Trump? And Trump on NBC. NBC was at seven because I sat down. We watched it live, and I recorded it. And then after Trump got off the air, that's when Biden came on on ABC. And I think they deliberately moved it to a separate hour so Biden would get more viewers. Yeah, I mean, what's the, which what, what is that all about? To show the whole thing for both of them, you know? That those guys never quit. <laughs> well, They're going to try to get a win any kind of way they want, even if they have to take a little segment when, when all the Republicans went to the restroom or something. Okay, take it now. Take the poll <laughs> Yeah, because if they're looking at the ratings on NBC between 8 and 9, Trump was not live. He was not on air at 8 to 9. He was on air from 7 to 8. I'm talking about Eastern Standard Time, so if anyone's curious, um, I'm on the East Coast. I'm here in South Carolina, so it's Eastern Standard Time, and we watched it live. Trump was 7 to 8. So Variety, if they're looking at the 8 to 9 hour on the two different networks, then they've got the wrong – they're looking at the wrong. Because yeah, NBC there has to be a more comprehensive rating. ABC was 8 to 9 for Biden. Because that's yeah, not no, making that's, sense that's, to me. No, no, it's Trump not. Gets 50 so, million. Trump got 50 million people listening to him on Rush Limbaugh in the afternoon. Fifty million. So you, 
You tell me he's only going to get ten point million. No, I, I, I don't to, buy it. That's got to be wrong. Variety's picked the the wrong time slot to to do you do the numbers on, and of course it's liberal media. What do you expect? Of course uh-huh. they're going to skew everything to make it look wrong. Yeah. But anyway, the time the time zone shouldn't even matter. Just give us the ratings for both shows. You know, that's what it was the show. <laughs> Now, we're waiting for our guest to call in, and I have to admit, I left. Now, Holger's saying that NBC Town Hall was at 8. No, I was watching it at 7 p.m. We were, we were sitting there live watching it, and it was a full hour. It was a full hour with President Trump. Okay, now, somebody here saying they started at the same time, and that's what I thought. I thought they were... Competing against each other. Well, I only turned at, at eight o'clock is when I turned over to ABC. At seven p.m., I was watching ABC. So you know, mm-hmm. and I was going to reach out to um, our guest. I, I just, I know, yeah, our guest, but I left my cell phone. In the other room, I'm looking around. Going, I want to text uh, his agent and say, "Hey, listen, where is he?" And I don't have my cell phone with me. Well, if you want to go run and get it, I'll, I'll do some talking. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is this is live, guys. So if you see me disappear off camera, my kitty cat just jumped on the back of the chair. She'll entertain you. I'll be right back. All right. All right. Yeah, I was. I'm up here in Philadelphia, the land of um, brotherly love and liberalism and progressivism. And I must say there are quite a few signs up here with Biden-Harris. Now, whether they have these signs on their property because they support these guys or they're trying to protect their property by saying, you know, indicating that, hey, I'm for I'm for your guys, the same ones you for. I really don't know, but it could be a little bit of both. But anyway, I haven't really gotten into any political conversations other than my brother who believes that um, Trump is going to lose. And he bases this on the polls. And that's the folly that happened with Hillary, as we know. And it seems like people have a short memory because, as I was telling Andy, on the night of the 2016 election, Hillary was favored to win by 91%. 91%, we know how that turned out. But anyway, I try to tell my brother, hey, you know, don't follow the polls. Follow, you know, the enthusiasm level. And no doubt, everyone will have to admit that people are, are enthused about Trump. You know, anytime you can get over a thousand boats to show up for a boat parade just like that within three days of you know notice anytime you can get a rally where anywhere from 25 to 35,000 people show up you know this guy is like a rock star and basically that's how I knew he was going to win back in 2016 because I tried to get in some of these rallies and I mean there were people that were stretched out seven, eight blocks long. And I mean, there was just single line. There was like three or four, you know, side by side for six or seven blocks trying to get in. 
and most of them didn't make it in. That means the the vineyard where the rally was being held indoors was already full. So you got like six or seven blocks worth of people, thousand number in the, in the thousands that didn't get in. But, you know, then you look at Joe Biden and uh, this guy, he can barely get three or four hundred, you know, at best on a good day. And on his worst days, you know, maybe 20 will show up and probably most of them are paid. You just don't know. But I, I look at the enthusiasm level and not only that, more and more blacks are coming out voicing their support for Trump. And even if they're, you know, still in the closet about it, more and more of them are awakening to the fact that, you know, they have been lied to by the left for all these decades and they see the results of the failures of liberal policies because you know, you look at the top twenty and some say even the top forty urban cities run by Democrats, you know, they are all in a shamble. They pretty much close to bankrupt. They have a large um poverty level, um kids are not being educated. Uh, they have all this violence and the drugs and everything. And um, even when they, these guys were rioting, um, and in some places they still are, Trump offered to come in and uh, quell these riots. But the Democrats refused his assistance. And I believe they did it only to, to keep this thing going so it can reflect on Trump. I mean, think about it. Trump had nothing to do with COVID-19 coming to our shores. You know, I I leave that up to places like the CDC and the World Health Organization. They were supposed to be on top of this, and they came up, you know, missing in action, or AWOL, as we say in the military. But, um, you know, they're trying to blame that on him. You know, he followed the advice of the experts, like Dr. Fauci. And he shut down. He shut down our, um, you know, businesses and stuff. And now they're trying to blame him for that. But anyway, seems like Annie is back. So take over, Annie. If you you listen to what Biden was saying about the COVID virus and his response, um, everything that he said, Trump had already initiated. You know, uh, he's a plagiarizer anyway. a plagiarizer, and he has a history of plagiarizing. If he were ever to become president, he would be the liar in chief. (laughs) There's no other way to describe him. But we got to wait till he finished running for senator first. (laughs) Someone had posted up on the uh, social networks last night that uh, Trump had nominated Biden (laughs) as the resident in chief of the local nursing home. And it looks like we do have our... our <laughs> I like that. It looks like we do have our guests in on the uh, on the, on the the phone line. And I'm, I know I'm going to mess his name up, and I do apologize ahead of time, but his his name is William Bull Guy Deng. Um, he is a proud U.S. citizen, and believe it or not, a former slave. So welcome aboard to William Bold Guy Den. Good afternoon, William. How are you today? Well, I'm doing so great. And you? 
I am doing fine. You have a most interesting, interesting background. And um, I, I got told who you were by our friend, our mutual friend, Bill McIntosh. You know, we have the Black Lives Matter movement here in the United States. It's been going on for several years. And the NFAC, and I'm not going to even say what that stands for because it's so disgusting. But you yourself have been asking if my life means so much, why aren't you helping me? And you've lived some of the most horrific conditions that anyone could ever imagine. And God bless you for the fact that you are here and safe today. Thank you for having me. And you're absolutely right. Uh, yes, uh, indeed, I made it to this country in 1999. And I was actually kidnapped. I was a slave with more than 700 children and women and young kids. I was seven at that time. Uh, we were been sold to slavery. Um, we've been beat up, you know put the chain in our leg. It took me personally for almost three years to manage to escape. And I made it to actually the capital of Sudan, which is Khartoum. And then there was a situation there that Osama bin Laden was actually in Khartoum in 1992, was sponsored by the same government, sponsored the uh, militant that enslaved the African indigenous. And then I have to run away again to Egypt when I made my way to the United States. Yes, it's a horrific story, but also I am so thankful that I'm here in the United States right now and for people like you to give me a chance to speak, to uh, put my message out there so that I can help other people to understand exactly we're living in a dangerous world, world that not only that caused 9-11 in America in 2001, everybody know that, and the Black Lives Matter know that, that we lost about 3,000 American citizens. Uh, this is not something coincident. That's something actually was well planned. And these are the same folk that attack our villages and kidnap the children. Uh, my message to Black Lives Matter, they need to understand that we have about 9.2 million right now African are still in captivity. They're still in a slavery. And they need help from Black Lives Matter so they can be able to speak up and be able to do what they call, if they have that power, they should go to in front of the United Nations and also the embassies of those, those countries that we know the name, the name of the countries. We know mostly uh, Libya right now in Libya, after Gaddafi. Uh, we have Africa now have to be stolen daytime. Uh, one adult costs about 400 U.S. dollars. Uh, women and children, and they're still uh, in slavery right now, and they need help. Uh, I think uh, you, uh, the United Nations have to do something about this. And the Black Lives Matter, they have to voice to stand up and have the African people in slavery right now in Libya and also in Middle East, in Saudi Arabia, during the coronavirus. There were almost millions that live in Saudi Arabia. They were actually put in, uh, in, in detention where actually a lot of them die uh, beating, killing, uh, and it's going on in Egypt, it's going everywhere. This is not new. That's something that's been going on for a long time. And I want to let you know that slavery is not something new. Slavery was not caused by Americans. Slavery had been there before even the United States was a country. Uh, you go back uh, to 9th century, and, 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 and the European went to Africa in 14th century. Uh, that's how they arrived. But when they got there, slavery was exist in Africa, uh, 9th century. So you ask yourself, who is slaving these people? Why are they in the market? Why are they still in the market until this day? Black Lives Matter, I'm not saying anything about it. So 
yes indeed uh, that is my journey and i'm grateful to be in u.s u.s is a great country u.s is the country that give us a chance as black people to have a congresswoman and congressman even u.s was able to go far enough to elect black president and we know this in 2008 obama was one of the black uh, citizens that was elected in this country so i believe America is the only country we have in the world right now that it can actually uh, give us a chance to put our voice out there to liberate more than uh, 9.2 million Africans in slavery right now. And that is my message to Black Lives Matter. They need to stand up and liberate these people if they really, have a, if they really care. Otherwise, if Black Lives Matter, I think that the slave Lives Matter should, should matter as well. And that is my message to Black Lives Matter. And thank you for having me. Oh, no, it is absolutely our pleasure, and thank you for, you know, being our guest. Uh, we're honored. Um, you you had lived under certain circumstances that Americans don't understand. We hear constantly that Islam is a religion of peace, but you were forced to convert to Islam and live under Sharia law as a slave. And people don't understand that, yes, there are there is a massive slave industry existing you know you have blacks enslaving blacks and selling them to muslims and this is just not only in africa but it's also all through the middle east as you have said yes you're right you're absolutely absolutely right let me tell you uh yes slavery was introduced by the muslim in ninth century the same muslim from the Middle East, collaborate with the black Muslim to enslave their own citizens and sold them, to, sold them to Europeans. And the same, uh, the Arabian, 99% believe in faith of Islam, with the African Muslim converts have benefited from this slavery. And they're still benefiting today. Well, I'm talking to you right now. Go back to the forefathers and the grandfathers. I knew today we have the ancestors of the slave owners who are still exist today in Africa. And we know their name. We know their grandfathers and them who actually slowed millions of Africans and benefit from the slavery and did not African leaders was able to confront them and condemn them and put them even in jail. No any leader. Even in African Union, they never stood up to condemn slavery. So slavery somehow, it was a business by our own citizens. Today, being a survivor of slavery, I become the boys of that slavery. And I'm still today witnessing slavery. So I'm not talking as someone that my grandfather was a slave. I'm talking as the slave in 21st century. And that's why I want the black community to confront the challenge, to tell the truth to the world. We cannot be hypocrites come to the reality that affecting our society. Humanity, the slave was a crime against humanity. And why we are silent now and talk about the black lemon when we are not talking about the slavery? What is the root cause of the slavery? Who slaved who? How slavery was conducted? And who did it? 
And why is it still going on now? And let me tell you one thing here. The slavery was abolished in Europe in 1800. I can tell you exactly it was 1820 to 1830 The Queen Victoria abolished slavery. But let me tell you right now, if you go to Middle East, you go to Asia, China, all these Turkish, India, you go to Iran, the slavery still exists. If you come right away to Middle East, where is the headquarters of slavery? Why are we neglecting the reality? And we're talking about Europeans. And let me tell you one thing. Europeans, the United States of America, Canada, Australia, these the same countries were ever to welcome the Africans who have been brutal by their own government, who have been sold to slavery. Today we have the largest population in America. We have a largest population in Canada. We have a largest population in Australia. These are not African countries. These are the countries that open their hand to welcome the Africa who is seeking a better life. Are we talking about this or not? We are not. So that means that if you go to China, recently during the coronavirus, most Africans they were kicked out from their own apartment. The Africans are not allowed in China to go to McDonald's and eat. The Africans are not allowed to go to supermarket during the coronavirus because China government have accused Africans are the one actually brought the, China, the coronavirus to China. A lot of them, they were kicked out from the apartment. They were living in the street. And no black, black man was able to stand up uh, 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 on those people to condemn the China government. There's something in the Middle East today. No black man and woman was able to stand up and do a rally in front of the Saudi Arabia embassy. Neither an Egypt embassy or Libya embassy. Nobody ever done that. And they are not willing to do it. Nobody is going to stand up and talk to the United Nations to condemn a slavery that's still going on in Africa today. So while I'm talking to you, my own country, we're about 2,000 slaves today in South Sudan. So why are the black lives matter? So I want to tell you that our message to the African, American, black, wherever you are, we have a challenge that we need to address. And that challenge is that slavery still exists. And we need to talk. And we need to condemn this. And it's said for us to go and rally in front of the uh, White House. I think we should also do the rally in front of the United Nations. That is my message. Well, you know, I, I was looking at your website. You've got fantastic information. Matter of fact, your beautiful, beautiful wife and child uh, are still in Africa, or have you been able to, to uh, unite with them yet? Uh, not yet. We do not you're not yet, but they're still somewhere in Africa, correct? Well, I, I'm praying that one day that the, the three of you will be together. But you have statistics on there that the country that has the largest number per thousand is Eritrea. There's 93 people per thousand that end up in slavery. Burundi is next with 40 people in a thousand in slavery, followed by Central Africa, Mauritius, South Sudan. Somalia, uh, Congo, uh, Chad, Rwanda, but you know we don't don't have included in there you know China, and you mentioned uh, Iran, India, uh, where still the slavery still exists. It may be outlawed, but it's not. No one's paying attention. 
And this is something that, you know, we, this, we're worried about the COVID virus. This is a virus far worse than COVID with 9.2 live victims. We don't have any idea how many have died in slavery because of slavery. Yes, indeed. Recently, slavery in, in, in Kuwait, in Kuwait, in, in Gulf Coast, which is actually a Middle East, in Kuwait. You know, Kuwait was like liberated in the hand of Saddam Hussein uh, during 1981, during the, uh, the first Buja demonstration, uh, when, it, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Kuwait today, actually, they even put the slave online in, in Instagram and, and in Facebook to sell their slave in the market, online. <laughs> It's online. So people have been selling online. Even the technology, they're using technology to sell people. African people, African women. Right now in Kuwait. And no black level is talking about that. <laughs> so this is the reality that we are facing. I want to tell you this. That America is the only place that we, the people, that beloved of the humanity, have to be able to stand up and reach out. So our American brothers and sisters can be able to stand with us to condemn this kind of uh, crime. Otherwise, today in the world, no other nation will be able to stand up and have these slaves in the markets. And we know this for sure. And those who are coming to America to destroy America, they already started in 2001. We all see 9-11. 9-11 was well planned. And it's still going on. If we don't have a strong national security, America will also will face the danger. It calls for America to stand up, to condemn the, the violation of human rights. The criminals don't want that. The criminals want to enslave people. They want to put them in the market. They want to benefit from it. Slavery is a business. In Africa, in the Horn of Africa, but also in the, in, in the Middle East. It's a business. So let me tell you. Those countries right now, the Eritrea uh, and Congo and, and Central African Republic and, and Burundi, they're going through the same oppression where they have a leader who actually collaborating with the slave masters to kidnap their own citizens. And there's nothing, they, they, they don't say anything about it. That's why the African Union will never address the issue of slavery because they're doing that for their own political interests and for their own greed and their own interest. And that's why the African Union will never stand up and condemn the United Nations. And we, I believe, that if Africans can unite and have one voice, and the African are African-American, they should go up to the Middle Eastern and ask the Arabian for the flavor they started in in, in nine, ninth century. And we should do that, but we let them get away and hide behind the Europeans. And we put the European as the face of the slave, the slave master. But in reality, the man who is doing it is behind the European. And we are not talking about it. And that man is still believing Islamic, but is spreading Islam among African people and convert Africa against their way to become Muslims against their way. So we have issues to address. And that's why I believe that, that we need to condemn these individuals who did not abolish the slavery in our country today. Slavery is not abolished in the Middle East, it's still going on. So that way they never abolish slavery. If you can start Northern African, they never abolish slavery. The slavery is still going on in Iran. It's still going on in Turkey. It's still going on in all these area Asian countries. And that's why we need to stand up 
and get our message out to the world so the world can be able to stand up to these African women and children. William, where can people find your website? My website is always is Quick Democratic Majority. Uh, that that uh, is always available, uh, and the contact is there. My information is there. And also I have a book that I, I write the book, uh, which is actually called Africa Freedom Fighters. And I have another book called uh, Freedom of the Lost Boys and the Journey, and the, the Cows and the Journey. I think I have also sent that link to, to one of my friends, Bill. Bill, I think can share that with you. So that is information. Anybody need me, I will be always available, and my team we are available. We also were campaigning. Uh, I became the anti-slavery candidate that going back to South Sudan to liberate more slaves, and that's why my passion is to go back to Africa to slave more slaves. That's why I'm here to talk to you on the on the phone. Well, William, we definitely have to get you back on, and do ask Bill to send me the books. Uh, and we'll we'll take more time with you. Half an hour is not enough for you to talk about this subject, because if if I did a quick search while you were talking, I just put female slave for sale, and I came up with um, children in Ghana, fifty dollars to a parent, three hundred dollars to a trafficker. Uh, you got uh, in Kenya, six hundred dollars for girls between the age of ten to fifteen. Mozambique, two dollars. You know, it, this is something that is worldwide and no one is paying attention to. And it is a subject that, you know, I hope that I can help you get more information out there so people can start to stand up and speak out. You know, the United States is a great experiment, un, unusual and unique to the rest of the world. And if anything, this is something that we as a nation should address. And I, I want to help you get the message out even better. I want to thank you for joining us, but we need to spend more time to uh, cover this subject. Thank you for having me and God bless you. God bless you, sir. And good luck. And we will, you've got two more, no, no, three more years before your election, two and a half. Uh, so we're definitely going to spend a lot more time with you and help you get the word out. Thank you. Thank you. Well, check out William Boy uh, Guy Dung. I, mean, I know I'm messing up his name. There is a link to his website on our show page. Go to kushdemocraticmajority.org. Click on the description and go straight to his website. We need to get this word out, Curtis. Uh, this is this is a, yes, we it's do. unbelievable that there are 9.2 Africans in slavery today across the world. With that said, we ha- we're going to have an uplifting message from our next guest. Let's welcome aboard Seth Morgan. His book is Mastery of Change. It's about self-transformation and empowerment. Welcome aboard, Seth. And <laughs> you're our latest victim. <laughs> good afternoon. Uh, actually, it's Sean Morgan. But yeah, thank you. It's good to be on the show. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm looking at the name I t- typed in. Sean, yeah, I don't know why I said Seth. I, I'm dyslexic. That's it. That's just simple. I'm very, very <laughs> dyslexic. No problem. Which actually is a true story. Which is a true story. I am dys, dyslexic. Dys, can't even say it. Dyslexic. And when I was in junior high school, they sent me to a speech therapist because I was stuttering. And I was writing words backwards and everything else. And the first thing this I don't know if she was a psychiatrist or I don't know what the heck she was, but she was supposed to help me get over my dyslexia. 
And she puts her hand out to shake my hand. And I'm an outgoing person. I give her a good, solid handshake, the way I've been always taught. You know, you're hey, I'm glad to see you type of handshake. You know, nice, not, you know, hard, just enough to say, I appreciate you. And she gave me a limp wrist. And her first words out of the mouth were, your problem is you're too aggressive. Oops. <laughs> Something's wrong here. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. <laughs> well, consequently, I obviously have overcome most of my dyslexia. <laughs> Not all of it. <laughs> Give me a glass of scotch and I'll get even better. But, uh, you know, <laughs> people can't change themselves if they're willing to change. And that's, that's the one thing I've always learned throughout my life. Recognize you've got a problem, address it, and then seek a solution. That's basically what you're about, isn't it? Yes. I mean, we're all struggling really in modern society with technology. We have uh, almost too much information at our fingertips. And our devices and social media and um, gaming and a lot of other things are really designed to give us dopamine hits and to get us addicted And uh, I think it's a daily struggle for most people who have a smartphone with the constant notifications, emails, uh, and other addictions like I talked about with gaming, that uh, we get disconnected from the healing power of nature and spirituality. And so um, that's what I'm focused on right now. I have two different podcasts. One is focused on health and, and fulfillment, and then I have another one that's focused on conservative politics and, and uh, what's going on today with that. Well, you know, we live in a very interesting time for me to say that, you know, I grew up in an age where TV, you had four channels. Uh, My parents, when they got their first telephone in their house, uh, was a party line. And very few people understand even what a party line was. Uh, I had a former co-host that I said, a rotary dial phone. And he goes, what's a rotary dial phone? You know, Technology has made leaps and bounds where very few people growing up today understand what true human interaction was. You know, technology has pushed us away from interacting with each other on an individual basis. It's how many friends you have on Instagram or how many likes you have on a post. And to them, that social interaction rather than sitting down face to face and having a conversation. Right. I mean, um, depression and anxiety, a lot of it is actually caused from social isolation. Since the advent of social media, uh, suicides have gone up by 300%. And like I said, it's actually very addicting, social media. And if it's a free drug that causes suicides to go up by 300%. So, um, you know, if someone was offering a free drug that caused suicides to go up, um, they would be, you know, taken to jail. But uh, the big tech giants, um, they make a lot of money off of it. And so it's really up to us to declare sovereignty over our own mental landscape, our own bodies, and to seek health and fulfillment and spirituality uh, in order to be be healthy and happy nowadays. And you have to say no to the technology and strike a balance. Well, people don't realize that we are social animals. We need human contact. And I think this pandemic um, is is 
distancing us from each other. I had to take my husband up for a uh, testing for his uh, cancer. And thankfully, I, I announced earlier that the oncologist called us on the way home from the hospital and said he was clear. So God bless. But even going to the hospital, the the human interaction was so sterile. And my husband's sitting in the wheelchair and goes, I hate this place. I hate this place. No one wants to walk up and say, hi, how are you doing today? And have a conversation. They're so frightened. And this is this is what the left is doing to us. They're putting fear in us, distancing us, making the, us more dependent upon them rather than being self-dependent and interactive. This is psychological warfare. It is um, anti-humane. You know, it, it's unbelievable how... Um, you can't visit your, your your grandparents at the old folks' home. You you can't give people hugs and handshakes anymore. Um, we are social creatures. We thrive off of it. We need it just like we need uh, air and water and food. And so um, I'm basically what I'm doing right now on my podcast and with my my new book uh, is basically giving people reminders and tools and checklists to be able to just return to the healing power of nature and remind each other of how and what you can do to connect with others, whether it's writing them a letter or forgiving other people or, or going through these different kind of healing uh, processes to, uh, to seek balance physically, mentally, spiritually. Well, didn't Ray Bradbury write about this in iRobot, in his iRobot books? When I, I remember reading them, I don't know, so many years ago. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I was thinking to myself, no, we, we cannot devolve, devolve into that, where we sit facing a machine and even our sexual encounters are with not another human being, but something mechanical, something that's artificial. No, we can't. But we actually have. Yeah. He, he predicted everything yes, we're uh, doing today. It's unbelievable how the science fiction writers like Aldous Huxley of Brave New World talked about how we live in an authoritarian regime where medical experts are telling us what we can and can't do, and that that's what we're living in in 2020. Now, I do believe there's hope. I do believe that uh, Trump is going to win. I believe that all of this authoritarian power grab is going to be reversed. But it's really up to us, the people, to... Um, to vote and to share, share knowledge. And, and that's a challenge nowadays with the big tech giants that are censoring. I myself just yesterday had my YouTube channel completely banned on, on YouTube. And, um, and so, you know, we have to spread the word with each other through means like what we're doing right now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We're the new medium, believe it or not. Um, I've, I've tr- actually even turned off Fox news. I'm out now on Newsmax, and every once in a while, I'm yelling at Newsmax. (laughs) I'm sorry. My DNA is conservative. (laughs) There's never been a liberal bone in my body. Uh, But uh, we're being chastised for believing in God, believing in our nation, uh, believing in our guns and our personal freedoms. This makes us an outcast in today's society Yet, the minority that makes us the outcast doesn't realize they're battling the majority, do they? 
Right. That's what they call the silent majority. I was just looking at the top 10 social media posts on Facebook, and they were almost all Dan Bongino and Ben Shapiro and conservative uh, people. And so it's unbelievable how much of a majority we are. Uh, but the the mainstream media that's owned by six different you know, multinational corporations, they have this echo chamber effect that they try to make you feel like you're the minority, but we are the majority and we're going to get our vote out in November and prove to everyone exactly who the majority is. You know, it's, it's funny because um, I'm one of my county's uh, Tea Party founders and we're still active, believe it or not. Um, matter of fact, we got our next meeting on Monday. Um, but when I gave some of my speeches, the very thing was, we are the silent majority and silent no longer. And that was true back in 2009, and it is even more true today, isn't it? Yes, I think we're at a nexus point where, especially with the censorship, that people are kind of realizing they have to choose a side. They have to speak up. They have to share information. For example, just yesterday, the Hunter Biden scandal came out, you know, his, he had a laptop, had a hard drive with a bunch of emails and incriminating photos and videos. And the New York post was just trying to do good journalism and and put that information out there. And Facebook and Twitter completely blocked it. And now Ted Cruz and other senators are really sticking at too big tech. And now people like you and me who are on social media are able to make a choice. Are we going to spread factual knowledge that we verify, or are we going to just let them shut us down? Well, it's funny because we are broadcasting live, not just on Blog Talk Radio, but on WCET uh, Radio out of Columbia, South Carolina, Facebook, and half a dozen other places. And I'm holding up before the camera a stack that I printed out uh, on the Hunter Biden thing, and it's got to be something like about 50 pages some of them are from the uh, New York Post articles. Others are from other locations that have expounded upon it. This is huge. I mean, it makes Watergate look like a tic-tac-toe game. Yes, there are so many different angles to this. You know, there's we already knew he was a blatant crack crack user. I mean, so so that wasn't even really the big surprise. Uh, but apparently he was having to fork over 50% of his uh, phony salary over to his father. That was referenced in the emails. Uh, you know, Joe Biden claimed that he didn't have any knowledge of his overseas dealings when, in fact, he was apparently setting up private consultations on his behalf. And, and you know, I'm really afraid uh, of what type of underage type of incriminating evidence could be there. Um, this is the thing that a lot of people have been thinking is actually systemic amongst uh, political elites is uh, blackmail related to underage stuff. And so uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see if that's, that's what comes out. Yeah. You make me just have a flashback because uh, when John Roberts voted for Obozo care, uh, his decision on that uh, court case, the first thing that came out of my mouth was they've got something on him. They're blackmailing him. So it, it makes well, you there wonder. Is a, there is a Robert. That- on the uh, Jeffrey Epstein flight log. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It, as soon as he made that, that decision and, and, and he 
put it down there in the court case. And I like looked at my husband and I says, they got something on him. They're blackmailing him. It's going to be interesting. Right. Will we see an impeached Supreme Court justice? You heard that it here first. Okay. Yes. I mean, well, you look at what happened to Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, he was arrested. They were building up a huge case against him. He supposedly killed himself, which no one really believes. And then his co-conspirator, Ghislaine Maxwell, has been arrested. And remember, they ha- they were running a blackmail scam. Pretty much anyone could could figure that out uh, with all of the mm-hmm. video they were doing on their private island and so forth. So I believe that we're going to see some big stuff come out and it looks like, you know, the royalty, like Prince Andrew's implicated and anyone who's been on those flight logs. And it's, it's like the A-list of the A-list in Hollywood and, and uh, politics and the mainstream media have been down to that island. Yeah, now, I'm trying to think of the name of the author, but someone wrote a book about Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, I'll be damned if I can remember who the author is because we had him on the show. I read the book. And at the time, this was about a year ago, um, some of the stuff that was in the book was so salacious. I'm like, holy cow. And he's still walking around. And shortly after that, he was arrested. And then surprisingly, he's dead. Now, having been one of my prior careers, a New York City cop and knowing New York City jail system saying, something's not right here. Uh, Someone did not want him to survive, which I'm sure that somewhere down the road the truth is going to come out absolutely i think this this next uh, couple of months is going to be a major time of disclosure to the american public uh we're probably going to have a lot of october surprises now on the left on their side they're probably going to pull one of their october surprises like they did last time around which is just try to find some kind of embarrassing thing that donald trump said on a hot mic which is not illegal and and you know that's the best they can do but on the other side we've been basically stockpiling ammunition for this type of information war we're talking about anthony weiner's laptop and everything that was on that with huma abedin and hillary clinton we've got the clinton foundation corruption pay-to-play schemes uranium one scandal uh ukraine china all of this stuff and it could come out some of it before the election, but I'm sure a lot of it's going to come out after we have a, basically a national mandate where conservatives will hopefully be, be controlling most of the legislative branches of government and will be able to really uh, drain the swamp permanently. Well, my co-host can tell you that I've coined the phrase that November 3rd is going to be a ballot box revolution, and they're not even going to see it coming. But there are going to be major lawsuits, and we're going to see ballots coming in out of nowhere as long as two weeks after the election demanding to be counted. It's going to be uh, – we're going to see court cases like we have never seen before. Hanging Chad is going to be a kiddie's game. This is not no hanging Chad That's here. why it's so important that uh, the latest Supreme Court nominee is confirmed. And I think she will be confirmed. She will be. Um, Just a matter of um, protocol. Um, The left there having a hissy fit over that, too. But what I wanted to ask, because, you know, you just said that we had we were building up a a lot of information against what the Democrats have pulled over the years. 
Wonder what ever happened to WikiLeaks. I mean, they used to be the one that were dumping all the um, information and classified this and that and the other. Did they go silent or what? Well, the founder and head of WikiLeaks has been in custody in in London for a while now, Um, but he might be extradited to the United States. And I think when that happens, he's going to say very interesting things on the record. And um, one of those things is probably going to be the source of the last WikiLeaks um, mm-hmm. stuff related to the DNC. And so people are saying, oh, it was Russia that hacked and blah, blah, blah. And he's probably going to say, no, actually, it was a DNC insider named Seth Rich. And so that's going to be very interesting to see what Julian Assange has to say. And perhaps all of this time, WikiLeaks has been collecting more and more stuff to be released in a, in a, a big type of disclosure. Well, it, the word has been out that um, he's going to turn state's evidence. That's the word that I've been getting. He's going to get immunity and state evidence. Yeah, he. I, that's what I would imagine. There would be some type of uh, agreement. Hmm. It's going to be very interesting because he's got a lot. Uh, he's got a lot on the DNC, and he's no fan of them, that's for sure. Yeah, and speaking of what we were talking about before with the Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell and Hunter Biden stuff that's coming out, um, you know, the the DNC emails had a lot of weird coded language related to pedophilia. And so um, this is the type of stuff that apparently Facebook and Twitter doesn't want us to know about because they're blocking the New York Post article. I think this is this is where we're headed. So some type of disclosure related to systemic pedophilia and blackmail in, in the political elite. And so um, it's it's not it's not fun to think about. It's it's actually very um, it's very shocking and 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 very sad to think about it. But we need to have justice for human trafficking victims and that can only happen with, with disclosure yeah it, it's interesting because the guest before me happened to have lived as a slave for a number of years and people don't understand human trafficking and slavery is very very much alive you know we're getting black lives matter and the nfac condemning us for our past history uh, but yet they fail to recognize uh, the 9.2 million Africans still enslaved, not including what's going on in India, Iran, China. Uh, and we can go on and on. All the people that have been enslaved and imprisoned in concentration camps throughout the rest of the world. Yes, and, and Donald Trump has, uh, through his administration's efforts, arrested more human traffickers than any other president in history, and he's passed an executive order to block the property of people in, implicated in, in human trafficking. So um, I'm very happy with what he's, he's done over three and a half years, uh, almost four years now, and uh, I'm really excited to see uh, the second phase of the swamp draining uh, over the next four years, because I think that's when he'll really get down the brass tacks. So the first step 
of the first four years was really to get rid of all the blockades because you have a corrupt FBI and DOJ and CIA and so forth. And so a lot of people resigned. We had record number of resignations and firings. And so now for the next four years, we can actually really make America great again. Well, it's funny because I was watching the um, <clears throat> town halls uh, that were going on last night and, you know, the different styles between Biden and Trump. Uh, but Trump was hinting that Bill Barr is not going to have a very long career. Uh, someone should be replacing him. But we see investigation after investigation. We thought Dempsey would be doing some uh, indictments. But we're not seeing anything coming out of this. Here you think, hey, they, they, they look good. They sound good. They're really getting to the bottom of the situation, to the heart of the matter. And when it comes time to fire that final bullet, the bullet is never fired. Nothing happens. And that, that really, I think, is stumping right. the American public. Oh, the public is getting angry. I mean, we, we've had enough. I mean, we had the most, um, the biggest political scandal in history. This is way worse than Watergate, having the, the, the previous president uh, spy on, on his campaign and then on his his transition team and everything. It's a, basically was a coup. It's basically treason. So um, John Durham has been investigating this for years. There has been one indictment, one guilty plea from an FBI lawyer. Um, maybe they're just waiting till after the election because they feel they have it in a bag. Um, and, and so they don't want it to appear overly political because a lot of people that are going to get indicted are Democrats. Yeah, you think? You know, it's, it's ironic. I, I, I don't plan on the the uh, um, lineup of my guests, but the good Lord must be always watching over me because every time I put the show together, subjects end up falling in place because following you, I'm going to have Jack Cashel on and his book is Unmasking Obama. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's like it just seems just to fall in place. Everyone's just talking about the same subjects. Uh, like I said, the good Lord is watching over me. Where can people find you? Well, I have a uh, political podcast, and that's uh, QAnonFAQ.com. And then I also have uh, another one. It's about health and fulfillment, and that is at www.downtoearth.tips. Because right, I had the website that was sent to me was masteryofchange.webly.com. Do you still maintain that? Yes, that's a, a book that I wrote in the past, yes. And your book is, is very uplifting. It's telling people how they can get a hold of themselves. This is, this is what we need, these wallflower kids out there now that get triggered because you're wearing the American flag should be shoved down their gullet and say, get a grip and get a hold of yourself. I mean, I am going to be watching November 4th, how many people across the nation are triggered because when Trump was elected the first time, uh, I had a watch party at a local restaurant that is, run by a good conservative and half of it was full of liberals eating their dinners the other half was full of my tea party and boy did we empty that place out in a heartbeat <laughs> and the next day 
watching people so triggered. Oh, Neil, I need a therapy pet. I need my, 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 my blankie. I need a safe space. Oh, no, you can't come into this corner and talk politics around me. I'm going to freak out. You're triggering me. Can you imagine what November 5th is going to look like? Well, it's ironic because, uh, you know, Antifa and Black Lives Matters are burning down the country, literally. So um, I guess the, the aggression is really on, on the left side. And, and the right has been unbelievably um, restrained in, in our reactions. Uh, we, we have more guns in America with our citizens than any other country in the world. And yet we haven't chosen to go down the path of uh, vigilantism, even though people have been violently attacking our, our communities. So I think that's a testament to, uh, to how balanced most conservatives actually are. Yeah, that, that may be uh, to our detriment at times. Uh, there are times where we're going to have to turn around and say, all right, we're tolerant to this point, and now you've stepped over the line. And I think we're getting to that point. I, I can feel the pressure building somewhere along the way. America is going to snap, and we're going to say, enough. Stop it. It's time to get back to law and order. I think people are starting to push back. When you see record numbers of law enforcement people turning their badges in and saying, I've had it. I'm retiring. I'm walking away. I'm going to become a plumber. I'm going to become a crabber. I'm going to become a hairdresser. Anything but this. I mean, I spent 10 years in NYPD. I cannot imagine being out there today. I don't know if I could do it. Yeah. Well, we're going to see a real evolution of the landscape because these uh, Democrat-run cities have, you know, district attorneys that are protecting rioters and so forth. They basically created these little hell holes, and nobody wants to live there anymore. There's this huge flight away from the cities. And so what you're going to have are a lot of conservatives, um, you know, creating long-standing political stability in the rural areas. And then in the cities, you're going to have some cities might Hopefully they'll recover, you know, but uh, people are going to have to suffer the consequences of their political choices in these cities. Absolutely. Well, Sean, thank you for joining us. Once again, tell people where they can find you. Uh, you can go to QAnonFAQ.com and DownToEarth.Tips. Well, God bless you for the hard work you do. Uh, thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. Check out Seth Morgan and his website, bringing in our next victim. And I got to tell you, uh, this gentleman and I may have crossed paths on numerous occasions without knowing it, because when I read his book, I'm going, oh, that's my buddy. Oh, I, I know that person. <laughs> I, there are so many people in your book. And uh, I got to tell you, the very Loudon was back in. Oh, geez, I think it was 2010, and he was standing in a cafeteria at a hotel up in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, like a little lost puppy dog. And at that moment, I walked up to him and I said, you want to join us? Because you look like you're lost and you have no one to talk to. And that was the very first encounter I ever met with my great buddy, Trevor Loudon. Well, you know, uh, Annie, I've yet to meet him, although we've talked on the phone a few times. 
Uh, and I live in Kansas City now, and he's been here. Every time he's here, I'm not here. Or, you know, it's, we've tried to hook up. But, by the way, I have to sh- give you a shout-out right here. My father, my uncle, and several of my cousins uh, were in Newark PD and uh, mm. for many years. So uh, I appreciate your uh, uh, what that job is like growing up in a police family. Well, let me introduce you to our audience because I didn't tell anyone who I'm talking to. <laughs> <laughs> the author of a fantastic a book. Yeah, a fantastic book called Unmasking uh, Obama, The Fight to Tell the True Story of a Failed Presidency. And the author is our guest, Jack Cashel. Good afternoon, Jack. What a start. i got to tell you also, my co-host is also, besides being a Navy vet, uh, the author of over 25 books, one of which Phil wow. Bryant is trying to help him make into a movie. Yeah, good for him. Yeah, I hope it works out. Uh, that's a tough business to break into, as you know. So I have I have my novel. I have a novel out called The Hunt, and we're working on Hollywood right now for the same reason. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> All right. I wish you well. <laughs> yeah, it's, no, I, it's a tough, tough sledding. <laughs> and I've also got another funny story to tell you because um, you, you wrote uh, in the beginning, you talk about Vladimir Bukowski. And right. um, I had scheduled him to be interviewed on the show here, and we were going to tape it ahead of time and then play it. So I call him at the scheduled time, and I hear glasses clinking, I hear ice, I hear laughter, I hear <laughs> music. And Vladimir's on the phone. He goes, oh, I had a couple of friends stop by. Can we do this at a later date? And I'm yeah. like, man, I wish I was sitting in your living room right now. <laughs> Yeah, so we had a very short conversation and we, we rescheduled and on the date we rescheduled, he got really ill and it was just, just before he passed away. So oh. I ended up having his um, author of his book, uh, which is uh, Judgment in Moscow, Edward Lucas right. on after he had passed away but i had spoken to vladimir twice on the phone trying to do the interview and i heard more fun going on in the background i'm going i'm in the wrong room <laughs> i'm in the wrong yeah. spot well, you, you know annie you alluded to this earlier but uh you know who the heroes in my book are and those are the people who during the obama years did all the heavy lifting they did all the reporting half of them are unpaid a lot of them are citizen journalists or bloggers or you know working for small online publications talk radio people, uh, and for eight, well, actually starting when Obama first uh, gained the national spotlight in 2004 through today, the major media still refused to tell the truth about him and his presidency, and you could walk into some major newsrooms, and they couldn't even answer the most basic questions. They know more about George Washington's first few years than they know about Barack Obama's. Well, you know, like I said, there's so many people that you and I know at the yeah. same time. And when I met in that very same South Carolina Tea Party Coalition convention where I met Trevor, Jerome Corsi was there and he was doing oh, a book yes. sign. And Peter yeah. Schweitzer was there. And they actually put Peter Schweitzer out in the he wasn't too happy. Um but Jerome Corsi I walked over and there's no one around him. And no one knew who this man was at the time. Yeah. And I made a French with him and you know every now and then i'll pick up the phone and call him and i was supposed to interview him and it was right after um oh god i just had a major brain fart that fbi raid on uh the house that was on cnn 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Right. We've had Roger Stone on the show a couple of times, too. And it was right after Roger Stone was arrested. And I called Jerome up to get a interview with him again. And he goes, no, well, I'm about to be arrested. And he was telling me uh, what was going on. And this is what the Obama administration had done. They were making him, forcing him, trying to force him to lie and give up names of people and give false testimony against other people. This was the Obama administration. They would turn and twist anything they can and force people into, like, like General Flynn, you know? Yeah. We don't care whether or not it's the truth or not. We're going to get you. Well, you know, I mean, there are uh, bad prosecutors that have done that sort of thing for a long time, uh, but rarely do they do it at the level uh, that uh, the Obama administration was doing it, especially given how sanctimonious the administration was about how scandal-free they were. They're still saying that. They still marvel at how scandal-free our administration was. I don't know if that legacy will survive Obamagate. I hope not, because, you know, right now, half of America knows stuff the other half doesn't know. Annie, it's probably the first time in human history that the ordinary citizen knows more than the, uh, the denizens of, like, the New York Times newsroom. But they do. We do. That's, that's the sure. ironic part. They're doing to the uh, New York Post. Go ahead, Chris. This yeah, is my co-host, exactly. C.S. Bennett. Okay, very good. Jack, does your book um, cover the assertion from the left that um, Trump inherited a robust economy from from uh, Obama, you know, Biden? Uh, you know, I don't I don't go into that in great detail. But what I do do is I talk about the the uh, many uh, stumbles uh, during the Obamas, especially their and their green. Uh, their green agenda, uh, like mm-hmm. things like Solyndra, like throwing $100 billion onto the, the pockets of their friends and the, under the guise of a stimulus. Uh, and the fact that what, after four years, their unemployment rate was something like 9%. No, they were, it was, uh, I, I, I don't get deeply into uh, uh, economic issues because I could have done the whole book on that. I focus really on telling the stories uh, that the media refused to tell especially about the, those big stories like uh, Fast and Furious or uh, the uh, IRS suppression of the Tea Party or uh, Benghazi or uh, the arrest, the harassment, the persecution of reporters and uh, truth-tellers of all sorts, people like Nikula Basley Nikula, the video maker, the innocence of Muslims. Uh, here's just a quick side story. Uh, this is the video that allegedly up. Uh, you know, prompted the uprising in Benghazi. It was obviously a lie. I get to the root of all these stories, but in Nikula's case, I, try, I followed this story, and, and it struck me as uh, entirely un-American that you would send someone to prison for a year for making a video, uh, which is essentially what happened. He got they, Technically, they got him on uploading uh, the video into the Internet uh, while he was still on parole for a kiting scheme. Uh, and so I sent him a letter at the uh, Latuna, and it was Latuna, Texas, the prison there, some hellhole in West Texas. And I never heard from him. When he gets out a year later, he calls me. He calls me, actually, I'm at my in-laws on uh, Thanksgiving. It was, it was a little awkward. I had to take the call. I was not going to take it. And he said, uh, how come you never responded to my letters? 
I said, I never got your letters. And then he tells me I'm the only person in the media who contacted him. This is, this is disgraceful. You know, it's, and it's typical. You know, when I did the book on, I did a book called Ron Brown's Body on the death of Ron Brown. I was the first person uh, to request and receive the Air Force official report. And that was seven years after the crash. The New York Times had a person on the airplane. They never bothered asking for it. I could go on and on. I mean, I've been able to make a career like a lot of people have, like Trevor Loudon and others, just on the big stories that the major media refused to tell. Well, you know, Leslie Eastman wrote a great article about your book, about unmasking Obama, and she writes yes. chapter after chapter, page after page, Cashel reveals the choices in false information that news organizations and media analysis highlights. It, how much the media is in the bag to the left. And, you know, my mom, God bless her, she's 88 years old. Uh, she had a stroke back in March. She now is living with me. I'm a caregiver. But she looks at things as she sees it on the TV, the news, and she goes, how much are they paying the media to not tell the truth? That's a question we should be really asking. Who's in the bag? Yeah, and that's an excellent question. And my question to them is, and I've asked them to their faces once or twice, how is it that you get up in the morning and look in the mirror and justify your existence as a journalist or a reporter when you will not report on, not just, I'm not talking about wild conspiratorial stories, but just big, massive things like, say, Fast and Furious or the IRS suppression of the Tea Party. How do you not report well, you know, on this? Because if it had not been yeah. for the, what I call the Samis dot, the underground conservative publishing industry, we would never have heard about it. Well, you know, you talk about the suppression of the Tea Party, and it's really interesting because we formed ours here in Beaufort, South Carolina, back in March of 2009. And during the, our formation, we kept on discussing whether or not we were going to become a 501c3, whether or not we would incorporate. Right. In the end... If you remember, around that time, in March of 2009, there was a company out in California, and I forget the name of the uh, Secretary of the Treasury at the time, uh, Geithner, Geithner, that's, that's who it was. Yeah, right, uh, sure, They right. made a stamp that every time they came across any currency, they would stamp a course's name, tax cheat. And uh, well. they went after him. They went after the company, the husband and wife team. They went after them uh, for claiming tax evasion. And I'm going, and of course, they didn't make a case. There was no case there. Uh, sure, but I said, if, you really wanted to, if they really wanted to arrest them and charge them with a crime that they could do time with, they should have had it for defacing the currency. You're defacing an official government document by putting the stamp, right. of course, Right in his name. And I said, that's an easy case to make. Boom. You got him. Fine him. Give well, him 30 you know, days. And I, in, the, in regard to the Tea Party, uh, Annie, I talk about Catherine Engelbrecht, of, uh, who started True the Vote in Texas. And uh, yep. I think it was the Texas so, uh, okay, Patriots. No. Someone else uh, I know. Yeah, 23 <laughs> audits. She and her husband mm -hmm. are audited 23 different times by about a half a dozen different agencies just yeah. for being an effective organizer. And I think uh, had the, uh, had the uh, Obama administration not done that, they would not have won in 2012. And that's also somewhere where we cross paths because if you remember, there were members of the Tea Party that uh, 
testified before Congress on two occasions. Yes. And right. the three people that are people I know, uh, Joe Dugan, Jerry McDaniels, Diane. Oh God, I, I just forgot Diane's last name. Uh, but these are all people I, I are personal friends of mine. So it's like as I'm reading your book. It's like how much we could have crossed paths very easily and not even known it. Oh yeah, but sure. you get that, and you get that to yeah, the heart of the matter. And, what you did, right? When you know these people personally, and you know how what, what integrity they have, what courage, what fortitude. Uh, when when you see them being dismissed as conspiracy theorists or cranks, uh, it, it becomes all the more offensive. Uh, they're not just names on the some wall that you read someplace. These are real people, and a lot of these people I've gotten to know pretty well, and uh, as you have, I'm sure, too. And uh, so it's like uh, when you watch the drama unfold, I mean, David Leiden, for instance, who's one of my heroes, and uh, the fellow in California who is being persecuted by Kamala Harris for daring to uh, record undercover videos at Planned Parenthood. And her assault on his freedom it's astonishing. He's 26 years old when he's doing this, when he sets up this private company to to uh, expose the traffic in baby parts. So here's the what the California of 2016 is like when Kamala Harris is still the attorney general, in which it's perfectly acceptable to uh, kill a viable late-term baby, chop up the baby, I hate to say this, not to be too graphic, into parts, and then sell those parts. That's perfectly acceptable. To record that, to report on that, is unacceptable. And uh, not only that, but it's in, in Delighton's case, he was arrested on 15 felony counts, yep. 14 of which were immediately dismissed. But he's, so, I, I and, understand he's been decided on 15 now. He is facing 15 charges as of today, as I understand. Yeah, I haven't I haven't checked uh, lately. I, he has a very effective video out. You may have seen that. Yeah. You know, I put down, as I was doing my notes, I got a big boom. Um, a gentleman by the name of Cliff Kincaid wrote an article about your, yes. uh, your book also. And I, right. the, the paragraph I marked as boom reads, the lack of coverage in 2008 of the embarrassing facts in Barack Obama's background especially his yeah. deeply personal relationship with a communist by the name of Frank Marshall Davis, stands as right. a sensational example of how dishonest the national media can be when they are determined to elect somebody. Jack Cashel's book, Unmasking uh-huh. Obama, The Fight to Tell the True Story of a Failed Presidency, accurately describes Davis as a bisexual Stalinist pornographer with a taste for underage partners. If this is news to you, consider yourself a victim of the major media organizations that worked diligently to cover up the truth of our 44th president. Does that nails your book down completely? Yeah, you know, and uh, that's exactly right. And Cliff Kincaid uh, and Trevor Loudon were responsible for introducing uh, the whole idea of who Frank Marshall Davis is into the mainstream. Let me give you uh, the person who did not do this. David Marinus, Pulitzer Prize winning Washington Post reporter, uh, you know, with a big salary and and lots of resources, uh, is commissioned to do a 10,000 word article on Obama's Hawaii years before the election. His article comes out in August. 
He doesn't mention Frank Marshall Davis, despite the fact that Frank, the character Frank, is Frank Marshall Davis, is mentioned more in Obama's dream from my father than any non-family member. And he just wipes him out of the uh, historical record. And there's a reason behind this, because it turns out that Marinus's father, like Frank Marshall Davis, was also a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. He was also one of those hardcore who, when Hitler aligned with uh, Stalin, stuck with the party. And, uh, you know, and so when uh, Marinus is reading or writing or researching Frank Marshall Davis, uh, well, maybe we ought not talk about this chapter of our respective lives. So he doesn't. (laughs) And at the same time, Michael Patrick Leahy, I don't know if you met uh, uh, Mike, but He's, he's doing a uh, self-published book at that same time in the summer of 2008. Not only does he get the Frank Marshall Davis part, but he gets the fact that Obama spent the first year of his life in Seattle. Now, if you went to an American newsroom today, a big newsroom, and said, hey, where did Obama spend the first year of his life? They'd say Hawaii. They wouldn't know. This would come as news to them. And yet, in 2008, 2009, you could go on the local blogs, the Capitol Hill Seattle blogs, now known as Chaz or Chop, and read about, hey, did you know Obama came from Seattle? He lived here in Seattle. They, and, and the major media suppressed that because it would blow the romance of this, you know, goat herder from Kenya and this girl from Kansas, you know. Uh, it's amazing <laughs> the lengths they went to to betray their profession. Oh man, I, I gotta, I gotta say, I guess some of the funniest uh, listeners. Uh, I've got the chat room open up here. And uh, we have Duck uh, posted. He goes, hey, I thought this was nice to celebrate Earth Day, which actually, I believe, originated in Seattle. A group of so- school children in Washington each planted a hair plug on Joe Biden's head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, there's, now, a of, uh, there's a lot of, I don't know how much growth is going on now, whether it's a growth industry or not, but someone invested <laughs> a lot in that head, you know. <laughs> yeah, I Harry see if he was like a movie star or something, you know. But come on, you're just a politician, you know. It's Dwight uh, uh, Eisenhower didn't use plugs, you know. So <laughs> hair in the can, unless you light yeah, up a cigarette right. and your hair's on fire. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about fires, uh, you address the major media, uh, citing actually out of Ray Bar- Bradbury's book. You know, it's so much interesting how much Ray Bradbury wrote about that we're seeing actually happening happening today. Because his yeah. book, uh, Fahrenheit 451, you cite right. calling the media the firemen. And yes. you, you, firemen we know today run into a fire to put it out. Uh, and in a way, that's what the media is doing. Right. And, and the, for the firemen in Fahrenheit 451... Uh, what they do is they start fires. They burn information, uh, books uh, or any kind of uh, information that is not sanctioned by the state, it gets destroyed. And all we have to do to see how that works is look what happened this week with the story of Hunter Biden, you know, in his laptop. Uh, Twitter and Facebook independently came to the conclusion that you and I shouldn't see this. The New York Post is the fourth uh, has the fourth highest circulation of any publication in America, and they were just banned. They're, the firemen came in and put that fire out before it could spread. And then last night on the town hall, uh, George Stephanopoulos, amateur fireman, decides 
well, that's not a story we should bring up with Joe Biden. I mean, this is it's pathetic and it's dangerous, but it's, uh, it, you know, I tell you what, it keeps me employed. <laughs> and gainfully so. Side, I guess. Yeah. Well, there's so, there's so much great information in there. And uh, you bring up Bill Ayers. And yes. um, he's got a certain talent. And I'm wondering how much the profits from the Obama books and how many books do the Obamas have written together right now? Uh, well, I, I, Ayers is only involved with Dreams from My Father. and uh, But uh, that book is, you know, launches crew. I mean, I'm sure Obama made at least $10 million from that book. And Ayers is cute. You know, uh, I've communicated with him by email. I've, I've never talked to him. But he's talked to uh, several people that I know who get back to me with what he says. And I was the first one to decipher the fact that he was involved, heavily involved in the writing of Dreams from My Father, which was doubly damning from a Democratic perspective, because uh, I came to this conclusion why the election was still up for grabs and uh, in 2008, damning for two reasons. One is because Obama denied having any kind of relationship with Ayers, who was a uh, terrorist and during the 70s. And the other was that um, uh, Obama's uh, you know, his, the reason why he sees the, uh, the sort of the, what do you call it, the shivers, uh, the pant-like shivers of the major media was because he was a literary genius. They thought he was one of them in that regard. Now, uh, so if Ayers was the primary author or a major contributor to Dream for My Father, A, it proves Obama's a liar. Secondly, it shows that he's in, in bed with a communist. And third, it shows that he's not a literary genius at all. His whole image, his whole machine is shot. <laughs> so when I came out with that theory, that's the day I became a racist. I, I, should, I did expect that, but it wasn't surprising. That was the reward uh, the firemen had for anyone who questioned Barack Obama. So anyone who questioned that agenda, and if you're white, you're a racist, if you're black, you're an Uncle Tom, uh, and... Uh, so better keep your mouth shut because we're going to come after you. In fact, I don't uh, think there's it, anyone it, in my book who is white who got, who hadn't been called a racist at some point. <laughs> you know, it, you talk about the transfer, the political transformation of our nation, how we've been yeah. pushed further and further to the left, and it's a small minority that is pushing the majority to the left. I, I think this year is the year the push is back. I think so. I see a, I, as I say, it's a ballot box revolution on November 3rd. Yeah, I, I just drove across the country, and I, I found the signs literally uh, very heartening because <laughs> I saw a lot of signs. But, uh, no, I, I, and I, I, let's face it, when I, in 2016, I voted for Donald Trump because his name wasn't Hillary Clinton. In 2020, <laughs> I voted for him enthusiastically, and I, I talked to a lot of people on the right, and uh, my uh, sentiment is pretty pretty widespread. I'd say it's the norm. I was, I was sitting, uh, hanging out with a bunch of my uh, conservative friends last night, maybe 10 of us, and we went around the table. None of us had voted for Trump in the primary. And now we're all fans. So that's, there's an enthusiasm gap that I think they're going to have a hard time bridging. The only way they can bridge it is by cheating, and they'll try everything they can do to do that. Uh, just question, they can't be too obvious because they're going to get caught. Yeah. Well, actually, in the primary, I voted for Newt Gingrich. And having sat down and, and talked to him, 
Uh, it was this is really yeah. hysterical because we were doing a, a rally for him, um, and he uh-huh. came to speak. And uh, I said, "Well, you can use my stage because we had a, a stage built that's on a trailer." I said, "You can use the stage, right. but you've got to give me five minute interview with King one on one." So right. we're all Tea Party leaders. We're having a bite to eat in this restaurant next to where the uh, the rally was going to be, and he comes yeah. walking in. And he sits down with us. So we're having a polite conversation, and after everyone got up to leave, he and I had the one-on-one interview. I look out the restaurant yes. window. There's mainstream media with their faces pressed against the window going, who's this woman doing the interview with Newt Gingrich? Well, he didn't do five minutes. He did 20 minutes with me. His aide well, finally had to drag him away. So, yeah, you know, I got, he, I got a Newt Gingrich story that's like that uh, when you're finished. Well, the, uh, the, the, the whole thing is that he go goes ahead. to I'm walk sorry. up on the stage. We go, he goes to walk up on the stage now after he does the interview with me. My husband didn't anchor it down properly. And the, uh-huh. the whole stage starts to tip up because it's on the back of a trailer. Uh, and yeah. The media is also rushing up, and I'm screaming, get off the stage in my best New York <laughs> City cup. Wait. He just looked at me. His jaw dropped like out of this tiny little girl comes this huge voice. I almost killed Newt Gingrich. I almost killed him. Yeah, that, well, that would have made you uh, probably a little more famous than you are now, you know. So, uh, you know, I had an experience in 2012, uh, and I was um, – uh, Todd Aiken was running for U.S. Senate. That's a, I, I, wrote, I helped him with his book, so I know that story inside and out. He got totally sandbagged by the party leadership, the Romney and Ryan. But uh, so I get a call the night before, I mean, so like about a week before the election. And Newt Gingrich came to Missouri to stump for Todd Aiken, bless his heart, because a lot of the conservative establishment ran away from him. And uh, I was uh, uh, asked if I could get him a gig, a breakfast gig. So I called this friend of mine who uh, has a breakfast club where you may have 100 like Kansas City businessmen show up every Tuesday or Thursday, whatever day it was. And it just so happened that was the day. And I got him on the agenda. They, re- they threw out some other guy because they put uh, Newt Gingrich on. So I'm waiting for him outside the restaurant to show up. I've never met him. And, uh, but I, I had spoken to these people before. And they'd come up and say, hey, Jack, you speaking today? I'd say, no, Newt Gingrich. Who is Newt Gingrich? Newt Gingrich, come on. Hey, Jack, you speaking today? No, who is Newt Gingrich? I'll get out of here, Newt Gingrich. You know? So Newt Gingrich gets there a little late. He goes, what should I talk to these people about? I said, it's a group of about 100 businessmen uh, from Kansas City. I would speak about something of interest to them. So then he did an hour-long perfect disquisition on fracking and uh, horizontal drilling. You know, uh, <laughs> It was stunning. And I spent, ended up spending the whole day with him because we went from event to event. And, he was, his, and his wife was with him too, Clissa, and they were incredibly personal and uh, decent and they, they my image of him improved dramatically after after that day. He's a big guy. I'm only five foot he's, three, and you know, he's a big guy. He's not that tall, but he's he's broad. You know, he's uh, he's pretty robust. So, and where in New York are you from, Annie? Annie, where in New York are you? Uh, oh, okay, very good. I grew up in New Jersey. And, uh, yeah. Well, my mom was from Red Bank, so <laughs> we we got roots yeah. there. Mama's yeah, County yeah, right, has a lot right. of my mother's Italian relatives here. Mama's County. <laughs> yeah. Oh. As a matter of fact, yeah, my Mama. father. My father was stationed at Fort Mammoth. 
You know, uh, if you look at the electoral map, Monmouth County and Ocean County, which is immediately south of it, because I spend my, I still go in there in the summer in Ocean County, uh, went big time for uh, Trump in 2016. So, and it will again. Well, I would imagine so. But I grew up in Newark, which is, you know, which doesn't go, that goes for whichever way the people counting the ballots want it to go. <laughs> Known for a former presidential candidate that was its mayor. <laughs> yeah, was that right, trend? yeah, right. That's uh, Cory Booker. No, that was Newark, right, right. Yeah, yeah he was, uh, uh, he was it, uh, allegedly from Newark. I grew up there. He didn't. That's the difference between us. He grew up in a nice suburb and tried to play Newark or, you know, I grew up in a in the inner city and tried to play nice suburban at some later point in my life. <laughs> See, it's a possibility. We could have passed cross paths all these years. Um, well, you know, if you I, went visited... to, I went to high school in I went to high school in New York City. So I mean, I you know spent a lot of time there. When I watch what what's happened to New York in the last six months, I I, I have a hard time understanding. And maybe you have a better idea than I do, Annie, of how. The people who live there, who vote for Democrats all the time, voted for de Blasio, they voted for Cuomo, voted for uh, Hillary, whoever, can allow the destruction of their city, the, uh, the, which also means the destruction of their property values and uh, the, their way of life. And they just let it happen. And not only that, but they defend the people who uh, savage their city. I don't get it. Well, you know, I got to say one thing, because uh, someone that I worked with when I was a cop in Brooklyn out of the 9-0 precinct, which was Bushwick, Williamsburg, yeah. um, is now the current PBA president, my friend, Patty Lynch. He stood up there uh-huh. and he said, never in the history of the NYPD and PBA have we ever endorsed a political candidate. And he's true. Never did. Right. And he stood there and endorsed President Trump. I was never so proud of my friend Patty. So, Patty, if you've got someone out there listening, anyone out there in NYPD listening, tell Patty Lynch that I am giving him the biggest kudos ever. And if I can (laughs) give him a hug right now, I would. I am proud to have known him, proud to have worked with him, proud to have had him as my PBA uh, president and my PBA delegate. God bless you, Patty. But Yeah, one of my favorite moments during the – the debate, the first uh, Biden-Trump debate, was when uh, Trump was talking about all the police support he has. And Biden says, I have some police support, too. And then Trump turned to him and says, name one. <laughs> you know, right? Because <laughs> uh, uh, historically, Jack, cops... Find you? Jack, where can people uh, excuse me? find you? Oh. Where can people uh, find uh, you and get your... Go book? to my website, which is uh, cashill.com, C-A-S-H-I-L-L.com. And, uh, you know, and for my books, they could go, they could find all about my books on that website, but, or they can, for an unmasking Obama, which just came out uh, last month, they can go to, uh, uh, probably the best place to buy it is Amazon. Cause that's how we keep score today is, uh, is uh, through Amazon. And I hate to beat that beast, but it's just the way it works. Well, Jack, thank you very much. And your book is excellent. I'm going to tell people to check, check it out. And we got to have you back on again. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Annie, anytime. We've got to tell uh, New York stories while we're at it. So uh, you take care and keep up the good work, okay? Thanks, uh, Chris, yeah, take care. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye.
All right. We've got our next victim already in the batter box, sitting there so very patiently. I hope she's not envious that we took too long to get to her. Dr. Ann Hendershot. She is also the author of the book, Politics of Envy. Good afternoon, Ann. How are you doing? Did we lose our guest? We lost our guest. Oh, Curtis, we just lost her. I don't know if oh, we can get her back. Yeah, she just dropped out. Oh, well, mm. I don't know. Well, let's see if we can get her back. Um, but that was that was a fun interview with, uh, with Cashel. Yeah. Yeah, I wish we had him on a little longer because I wanted to ask him what he thought about um, the left uh, and their views on Obama for leaving so many court vacancies, you know? That must really have them enraged, even though they're not going to say it or express it. But he did leave so many, you know, court vacancies open, and Trump went in and, and took took advantage of it, you know. And rightly so. And now they're regretting so. that. Absolutely. It looks like she's back in on the line. Let's see if we can get her back up on here. She dropped out unexpectedly, and I was. Saying, I hope you're not envious of the time I spent with Dr. Cashel, Dr. Ann Hendershot, the author of The Politics of Envy. Good afternoon, Dr. Ann. We're having a problem with her phone line. I'm not hearing her. Are you catching anything, Curtis? Not I'm a not thing. catching anything. I'm not. She dropped out again. Oh, she dropped out again. Curtis, maybe, do you see her phone number there? Can you possibly try to call her? It's gone, the number. Oh, all right. Let me just, I'm going to send you a text. Uh, it should be coming through in a split second if I can type. So I just sent you her number. Maybe you can try calling her. I don't know what's going on because we get no sound from her okay. end. And it's it's interesting because I really do want to talk with her, uh, talk to her about the snowflakes we have out there. Um, do you know what? Uh, do you know what part of the country she's calling from? Maybe storms or something. Oh, it's possible. Let me take a look at her area code. Um, see where she's is from. Area code, saying Maine. So, Maine? I don't know what's going on. Maine, yeah. Oh. Who knows what's going on up there? We've got the trolls on the phone. They heard us having too much fun today with our guests. I mean, it's, it's actually outstanding, the people that we have coming on to the show. Uh, and she's back in on the again. Let's try her again, because we're, we've been trying to get her to come on live. And Dr. Ann yeah. Hendershot, are you with us? I hear a faint sound. There's something wrong with the phone connection. Hello? Yes, hello? 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 Yeah, I, I was looking for Dr. Ann Hendershot. Who's this? This is Daniel Lycan. Daniel I haven't Lycan. talked to you in a while. The author of the George oh. Washington Vision. I was right, watching your right, show, right. and I had, I had a question for Jack about Hunter Biden and if you can't oh, get Dr. Hendershot I'd like I'd like to ask Curtis and you that question if Jack's gone. He's gone. All right. What's the the question? question was the question? Yeah, the question was 
does that money trail lead um, Hunter Biden um, and Burisma and, and Joe Biden? And, and my theory was is that the Ukrainians arrested Hunter for cocaine, and they held him, and then Joe had to go get him out. And that's the reason why the judge was was uh, moved. The prosecutor was fired over there. Was targeted, there, yeah. Yeah, and there's a money trail that goes all the way from uh, the Bidens, the Obama administration, all the way through um, that way. And I didn't know if Jack had had investigated that or not. I don't think he's gotten into the Bidens completely just yet, from what he was saying early in the uh, interview. Um, but it sounds like something that he will be looking into. This story is just breaking, and he's got enough connections that I'm sure that he can, uh, you know, dig out what the truth is. It's a possibility. It's his next book <laughs> with the amount of information that's coming out about the Bidens. Well, I certainly hope that uh, the president brings that to light before the election, if he has any of that evidence that's been accumulated. So that the American people can see exactly what's been going on there, and hopefully it will rapidly accelerate that it will make a difference before the election and that people will see the truth. Well, according to the president's pronouncement last night at the town hall, uh, he's going to release some more information. There's more information to come out, you know, yeah. other than what's been dumped over the last week. So hold on to your seat, as they say. All right, guys carry on with democracy. <laughs> Thank yeah. you very much, Jim. So, Appreciate it. Well, Daniel, do you have anything else you're working on after that one book? Um, I am, I'm just working on supporting uh, my kids, you know, um, that one's a Black Hawk helicopter pilot and the other one's a ranger. And um, just to tell you uh, uh, kind of a funny story, um, I was Around New Year's, my son said, we got to go in. Uh, we got to go in to the embassy, get them out of Baghdad. And, um, you know, Soleimani was there, and he had filtered the students out, and uh, the Shiite the militia had come up, and um, he had made a plan that they were going to go in and take hostages within our embassy. So on the way to the airport, we smoked Soleimani. So I got a text, uh, threat has been removed. But the, the funny thing is, is that I was listening to our Senator Angus King on the radio, main public radio here. And, um, he said, um, well, um, that was the kin to, um, when the Archduke Ferd, Franz Ferdinand got shot by an Austrian Serb and Soleimani, that his killing could start World War Three, and I called him up. I said, "You know, that's that's hogwash." And I said, "He started. He was going to go into that embassy and take hostages, just like Khomeini did, you know, and use that Dan pattern. And where would we be?" Well, Daniel, I want to thank you for the call because our guest is on the line. So, you know, Good. give me a shout. I'm glad. I'm glad that we got on. to talk about the truth. Let's let's more truth come out before this election. You guys carry on. Good to talk to you again. And we'll talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Daniel. Take care. All right. All right. 
We do have our guest in on the line, finally, after all that confusion. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ann Hendershot, the author of Politics of Envy. And, oh, boy, are we going to see a bunch of snowflakes this election season, Dr. Ann. How are you today? Certainly are. I think we're already seeing it. It's good to be on your show. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure because whenever you know, I hear something about that someone's a sociologist professor or a psychiatrist or something like that, I always take a step back and go, oh, my God, another liberal. But listening to you <laughs> telling people they should be no. self-reliant and responsible, it is a breath of fresh air. Well, thank you. Yeah, well, I decided to write this book because I was just so tired of all these politicians trying to tell us to be envious of rich people. So I thought, that is the silliest thing. Why would you encourage a sin? I mean, I'm Catholic. You know that's one of the seven deadly sins, the sin of envy. And for politicians to do this, to encourage envy, um, I think is a big mistake. But it continues. It continued through the hearings of poor Judge Coney Barrett, um, but these envious women, these senators, I mean, I just wrote an article about it. Hell hath no fury like a female senator scorned. <laughs> they, are, they just hate her. They really hate her, don't they? It is absolutely I, amazing. I well, you know, yeah, I, I, I was listening to everyone describe her, and they, they talk about all of her uh, her mental uh, attributes, her her accomplishments. Never once did I ever hear, hear anyone say, and she's beautiful, too. She's and stunning. She is, I know. So what is wrong with saying that? Well, when you really are envious, you don't, you're blind to it. I mean, if you've ever read Dante, in the second circle of hell, there are, these, um, there are the envious. And they've had their eyes sewn shut because they shouldn't see people to envy. So that's their, their punishment. But the truth is, the people who are envious are blind. Those women, Amy Klobuchar, Senator Klobuchar, was the worst. I mean, she's the one that said to the, the candidate, to Amy Coney Barrett, that Amy Klobuchar should be sitting in her seat. <laughs> and she was saying it half in jest. But no, she didn't mean that in jest. She's really angry. I, I think she felt... Hey, listen, I sold my soul to Planned Parenthood. I did all the things that progressive women should do. I sacrificed everything. And here I sit, and there she sits, and I'm better than she is, because that's what she was. She was very prideful. I mean, she was probably several of the seven sins right there, um, aside from being hostile and angry and bitter, which are not necessarily sins, but they are qualities that she seemed to have at these hearings. Um, yes, she's angry, and others were angry too. Maisie Hirono wanted to humiliate her. Their intent was humiliation because they couldn't get her on anything else. She's probably the kindest person. Isn't that what that former student said about her, the woman who was blind, who, was, who worked for her and was her student, said she was the kindest person she'd ever met, which just makes people crazy who are envious, the envious people who were at that hearing and grilling her the way they were, Kamala Harris, one of them for sure. Um, so that's why I wrote this book, The Politics of Envy, because I really want people to start paying attention 
to the bids for envy that we seem to be getting, not just from politicians, but in the Black Lives Movement, in the Marxist Movement, in the movement to take down the rich, the guillotine. I don't know if you spoke about the guillotine with your listeners that was created on the front steps of Jeff Bezos' house. Now, I'm not a big fan of Jeff Bezos. I don't like what he's done with the Washington Post, but he's a good man. I'm sure he's a good man. He loves his family. He loves his new wife. But he has a lot of money, and for the envious, that's a crime. So they put up a guillotine outside his house to send the message that we like to kill rich people. That's really what the message of the guillotine is. It's from the French Revolution. We like to kill rich people. And so I'm seeing a lot of guillotines. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny because James O'Keefe, and I I love that guy. He's he's far more handsome in person than, than on, on the uh, TV screen, you know, having interviewed him one-on-one. Um, I love him. But he actually interviewed, he, he walked up, he talked directly to the guy that, that's the head of, I think it's Antifa, and asked him why oh, he it. used the guillotine. And the guy just, he, he answered honestly exactly what you were saying. It's the symbolism that, hey, you know, it's going to be off with your head. Off with your head Off with his head You know, (laughs) envy is just absolutely outrageous You know, you you have to bring everyone down to the same level You can't have really rich people And those of us, we consider ourselves poor You've got to give us your money Wait a minute, wait a minute I worked hard for that money I worked hard for everything I have What makes you think you deserve what I worked for? Well, you've got more than I, so you've got to give to me. That's the mentality. In other words, they don't want to work. They don't want to do anything. They want to receive. Give me, give me, well, give me. Well, it's true. And you would be generous to charity like we are. My family and I are very generous to charity. But we like to give to those who are deserving and who we know or want to receive this. We don't want to give money so that Hunter Biden can make money over in China. We don't want to just pour our money into government programs that have never worked. I mean, one of the things with envy is, and this socialism movement, Winston Churchill once warned in a speech in 1945 before the House of Commons that the the vice of capitalism is the unequal sharing of blessings. I mean, there's inequality, of course, with capitalism but the virtue of socialism is the equal sharing of misery that's what he said and he saw socialism as a philosophy of failure and a gospel of envy i quote him in my book um i love churchill and he had a lot of sense with this he knew that that's what socialism is socialism is all about envy just what you said it's tearing down the rich sometimes it's killing the rich and their rhetoric has become ever more violent in the past few months that's it's, kind it's of what concerns me. Oh, it well, is. It's, it's very clear. I don't, now we've got our schools well, teaching, teaching capitalism is bad, socialism is good. And they're, they're bringing forward whole generations of future voters with the idea right. that socialism is a good thing. Failing to tell yeah, them that's, how that's socialism has failed, how socialism has enslaved, how socialism has... Pr- Created, uh, committed genocide, mass murder, mass incarcerations. No, no, no. Capitalism is bad. 
making money, earning money, making yourself prosperous, and getting up in society is bad. But yet we yes. can have these super rappers being billionaires. That's all fine. You know, you've you got these, these Hollywood elites and these media moguls. That's fine. But being a business owner, employing people, getting them to earn money and make their lives better, and you make a profit at the same time, is a bad, bad thing. I know. That's what worries me, and that's why I decided to write the book, because there is a politics of envy. And some people, um, well, like this this Twitter uh, former CEO who was allowed to post on Twitter that um, insufficiently woke CEOs, he didn't use that term, he would say CEOs who are not down for social justice should face a firing squad, and he offered to videotape it. He said they should be lined up against the wall and shot in the revolution. Now, this is a guy who's a multimillionaire. His name is Costello, Dick Costello. He was the former CEO of Twitter, posted that at 2 a.m. on Twitter, and it was allowed to stay. Now, that's pretty violent, and they won't allow us to even post the New York Post article about Hunter Biden, but he can post a <laughs> violent article like that or tweet. Yeah, I tried posting that article yesterday twice, and it just it never did. went up. It never ended up no, on my it page. never does. So, yeah. I know. So, I tried yes. to post an article that someone had written about it, and they took that down, too. But I think they're changing that policy because they're, they're going to visit Congress next week, I think, which is a good thing. Oh, I'd love to see them walk out in handcuffs. <laughs> really? Yeah, I don't I'm think that's going to happen. Right <laughs> and it's not because we're envious of them. I don't want to be them, but I don't want them running our lives. I, I just, I feel exactly the way. I always have to question my motives. Why would I want to tear them down? Because that's what envy is—the desire to tear someone else's down, the way these female senators were doing, humiliating people. But. With these Twitter executives and Facebook, I don't want, I don't, I'm not envious of them. I'm angry with them because they are really stacking the deck in this election. And it seems so unfair. Well, you know, I'm going to have to have Vito get you to sign a, a copy of your book and send it to me uh, so I can add it to my bookshelf behind me because uh, I'm up live uh, on Facebook right now. So people looking can see Trumpy there. Behind me on my bookshelf, oh, <laughs> my sign that says "Cops for Trump." <laughs> so I got to edit oh, to my bookshelf. <laughs> I would be happy to do that. Now, your book was released only yesterday, um, so it, it, it's in a timely fashion, just before the election, because we watched my my husband and I and my eighty-eight-year-old mother. <laughs> God bless her. Yeah. She stole my arctic bunker chair. Um, we're oh, watching. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I took her in because she she had a stroke and um, she needed twenty four hour care. So I became her caregiver. Do you want an eighty eight year old Italian grandmother? I'll, I'll give her to you. <laughs> <laughs> does she help with the cooking? Yes, I would if she does. Cause there's nobody that cooks like an Italian grandmother. I think. Well, actually, I think I've been teaching her some stuff. Uh, anyway, uh, we were watching the town halls and listening to the moderators, and all you heard 
the vitriol that was being hurled at you know President Trump, mm-hmm. uh, and she was actually envious that he was answering on point, on fact. She could not derail him, and she was getting yeah. really frustrated. I know she was, yeah, and it was just so unfair. This was supposed to be a town hall, not a debate with her. It turned into a debate with her. I ended up turning it off after about a half an hour. I felt frustrated for the president because he wasn't able to talk about issues. He was he was being called a white supremacist again, which is so ludicrous, just absolutely ludicrous. But don't you think a lot of the hatred toward Trump is, is based on envy? He has a beautiful wife, a family who loves him. He has children who love him. There's a lot of hatred there and successful children and a successful wife. And, you know, I think people are very envious. They don't want to be him, but they don't want him to have what he has. They'd like to see him in handcuffs or just, gone away somewhere on a you know on an island so they don't have to look at him and be reminded of their envy I I pretty much make that argument in my book I look at envy everywhere envy in academia I'm a professor so I see a lot of envy in the in, in academia somebody gets a better contract than somebody else has a bigger office than somebody else and so I write about mobbing behavior too um, where people gang up on a high-achieving professor. I've seen that happen. It hasn't happened with me. I'm a sociologist. Nobody's threatened by sociologists. But if there's a very high-achieving professor, very often the envy will get to the to the rest of the faculty, and they try to drive him out. And I write about that. Well, you know, there's, there's something in my personal life that I've noticed. You know, I'm a Tea Party leader, and we formed our oh. group back in March of 2009, and we're still active. And out of the group of us that formed this organization, I'm the last one standing. Mm-hmm. And I turned around to my group. This is after all these years. It's now 11 years. It's time for me to step aside. And I've been trying yeah. to get someone to take my my place. Now, envy is a very yeah. interesting thing. They can turn around and say, "Oh, I can do that job better than you," but. When you put the chips down on the table and say, put your money where your mouth is, step in, no one steps in. Because they can't do it better than you. That's the thing. But they don't Ah, want you necessarily, you know. But they want you to, they don't want to do it. It's very funny. Envy is a very, very interesting thing. Because I had a relative of my husband's when we moved from New York down here to South Carolina, um, they had another relative that had tried to do that, and they didn't succeed. They said, oh, well, they only lasted a few years, and they, they couldn't make it, and they ended up moving out again. And then they turned around to us and said, well, if so-and-so can't do it, you can't. We guarantee within two years you'll be back here in New York. That was 20 years ago. And it was very interesting. That courage, though. It does take courage to pick up and go somewhere like that. And that person was probably envious of your ability to do it because she couldn't. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, envy it was envy. Yeah, envy is, it hurts the person who is envied, and it also hurts the envier. Nobody gets anything good out of envy. It's the only sin where there's no pleasure at all, really. It's just miserable. If you saw those women, those senators, but they're contorted faces and their angry voices, they're not happy people. <laughs> and that's why I wrote that 
Hell hath no fury like a, a senator scorned. They are just very angry. And I think it's envy. You know, because they're not succeeding in their life, their anger has to come back down onto you. And as you mentioned, the senator from Hawaii, um, her questions that she asked. <laughs> I know. Judge Barrett, and I'm going, where the heck did this come from? I can understand if she asked that of a man to ask about sexual harassment or sexual lawsuits or anything like that. Or have you settled? Have you signed in the year? And and I'm going, what? Yeah, these are yeah. the questions you would have expected asked of Kavanaugh, which they did. Uh, but yeah, I wondered if Judge Barono had the same binder from Kavanaugh, and she just used her <laughs> old notes or something. <laughs> As a faculty Good member, point. I sometimes use my old notes, so I think, uh oh, maybe she didn't change her binder. <laughs> That's but a it was really the stupidest point. question, and it was so embarrassing for her because although she had such grace, Amy Coney Barrett had such grace, she didn't say, "Are you kidding me? Crazy?" and she just said, no, Senator Hirono. Just very calm and gentle. She's a role model for all of us, I think. And then I got to the point where I listened to her chastising Judge Barrett about the use of the phrase sexual preference. Uh, and I, I, I hit the yeah. ceiling on that one. And I said, wait a minute, what part of the word preference do you not understand? You know, and one of the things that, you know, when I went to college, I loved was linguistics. You know, the the, the oh, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. source origin of the of word. Words. Yeah, the origin right. of words. And, you know, prefer, coming from the Greek verb protimo. You know, it, it is that it's something you choose, you opt, that you would like better than something else. That's a personal choice, a personal option, a preference. So what part of sexual yeah. preference do you not understand? You prefer to be sexually involved with another man or a woman or your favorite tree, like the woman that married the tree in California. <laughs> that is a preference. You know, you can say it pedophilia is, is I think the pol- Yeah, the politically correct believe that they don't want people to think it's a choice. They want people to think that it's an innate attribute. And so that's why preference. But with the growth of the bisexuality that we're seeing now, there's so much of it. That's been a tremendous increase. That would be a sexual preference, don't you think? If you're bisexual, one day you prefer one, one day you prefer another. You're bisexual. Sometimes you prefer a man, sometimes you prefer a woman. Um, that would have to be sexual preference because that's not orientation. Orientation would well, mean then, you prefer one. Well, you know, it, yeah. it, 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 I think what they're trying to do is give a valid argument to the idea of gender fluidity. And exactly. I think it's, it's, it is a political ploy. They're using our language as a way to make a political statement. Instead of saying true to the word, it's like you used to say the yeah. word gay, meaning that you're happy. It no longer means <laughs> yeah. that. That's a long By, time ago, right. I remember too. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's how old we are. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, your book that's came out true. only yesterday. It's up on Amazon, and I see this thing mm-hmm. shooting to number mm-hmm. one pretty soon. 
So, oh, Dr. Ann Hendricks. Thank you, Annie. That's so nice well, of you. There's a link. There's a link to the Amazon page so people can download your book because it's also up on Kindle as well as in paperback. The Politics of Envy, Dr. Ann Hendershot. We've got to have you back on and spend more time with it. Thank you. Just I would love to. Fun talking with you. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Well, God bless. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. All right. Dr. Ann Hendershot, check out her book, Politics of Envy. And we've got our final victim of the day. And it's a paisano, a fellow Italiano, uh, Gina. Jeez, uh, I just messed up the name before I even say the whole name. Jean Carlo Conpero. Good afternoon, Jean. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I am doing fine. We have had a a blast of a day today. One great guest after another, and you're here with us for the first time, so you have no idea what you're in for. <laughs> I don't, but I'm ready. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, so many things have happened uh, over the last 24 hours. I barely even know where to start uh, because um, when uh, Tom sent me your name over saying that this is the person I'm sending you today, you're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, we were originally going to talk about Amy Comey Barrett, uh, but so much more has happened. I don't even know where to start. So you tell me, which subject do you want to touch on first? Well, I'm always happy to talk about Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, what a lady with what class. She ate them alive, spit them out, and said, try coming at me again Time, for three days straight. Unbelievable. You know, she did, and, and she did it with such grace. You had, they had no idea that they were being chewed up and spit out because she was just so so much the the kind and caring professor about it and you know um they tried to bring up her religion and the funny thing is is that in the last couple of months i've seen more and more catholics stepping forward and speaking out and it used to be you never mentioned that you were a catholic it was like it was it was a major major no you don't you don't you don't you just don't no one has to know. Don't don't even say that you're Roman Catholic. <laughs> you're saying you're Christian. But now suddenly Catholics are starting to step forward. And and I find that amazing since I was raised Italian Roman Catholic. And you know what I mean when I say Italian Roman Catholic. I sure do. Uh, and my mother's still very, very Roman Catholic. Uh, she's probably in the living room right now with her rosary beads. Uh, but... It, it, they're starting to speak up and bring moral questions into the forefront. And if anyone was truly Christian and truly Catholic, it was Judge Amy. Yeah, it's great to see, you know, that uh, somebody like Amy Coney Barrett, who can rise to the top of the legal profession in everything she did, from graduating the first in her class in law school to clerking on the Supreme Court, to becoming a top-notch law professor and a federal judge, all of that while being true to her Catholic faith, having seven children, uh, keeping in touch with, with you know, all of her students who adore her still to this day and will go to bat for her. I mean, all of that, and, and she's, you know, she's not this, uh, you know, the, the feminist type that says you can't, you have to choose between uh, your profession or your family or your faith. No, she said, no, I get to have it all. 
uh, and she has, and that she sets such a great example uh, for women who don't fit, say, the progressive mold of, of what it means to be a successful woman. She is, you know, the, the most successful woman you could be by whatever metric you want to measure her by. Uh, and, and it is such a great example. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, there was a recent article up on Heritage. I believe you wrote this one. Um, in criminal cases, Amy Coney Barrett demands utmost integrity from courts. And the paragraph that I, I highlighted was, on one hand, you have the power of the government at its apex, the power to take away property, liberty, and even life. And, on the other hand, you have individual rights at their apex, the right to due process, the right to a jury, the right to counsel, and even the right to use government's power to summon witnesses for one's own defense. The stakes hardly be higher. And in every single question that she answered, she in oh, I'm, the word just went out of my, uh, my, my head. I'm having a senior moment. Um, she exhibited every single one of these qualities in everything she answered. So even recognizing you have to walk that fine line, recognizing the power of government and the rights of the individual. Yeah, we saw that constantly through her testimony, just this approach to, to judging that respects individual rights, that respects the Constitution, that respects the democratic process and says, look, as a judge, it's not my job to be imposing my will on the people. Uh, it's my job to really carefully weigh these interests, to interpret the text of the Constitution and statutes the way the people uh, who wrote them wanted them to be interpreted and not to be uh, the activist judge who just does what I want. Because, you know, when you do that, uh, you, you're, you're stepping in the way of the people. You're not doing justice. You're imposing your will. And, and every time uh, the senators tried to get Amy Coney Barrett to uh, articulate uh, a position or to say, you know, you're going to impose your will uh, on the law, she was very careful and very firm but gentle and said, no, that's not my job. Uh, and what we saw from, from her testimony for those three days was just somebody who is really a judge's judge, judge someone just deeply committed to uh, what it means to be a good, faithful, responsible judge. Now, if she does, and we know she will be you know, on the bench, she, the first time we did not have an Ivy League uh, attorney. She went to Notre Dame. She didn't go to Yale. She didn't go to Princeton. Uh, she didn't go to one of those pillared towers. This is going to be a groundbreaking time where a mother uh, of seven kids, you know, someone that is running a household as well as being a judge is going to sit on the bench. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah, it really is uh, just fantastic uh, that uh, she can she can do that and 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 be there. And and you're right. I I do think uh, she'll make it through the confirmation process. It, it, it's looking good. Uh, uh, we'll see if there are any last minute games, but uh, it's looking good for her. It's funny because at the uh, town hall last night, you know, Trump was asked about that. And, you know, he's president for four years. And as they've said multiple times in 29 different instances, 
a president facing re-election or on the way out does still get to nominate a judge. Yeah, you know, the history, when you look back, uh, this is not an unusual sort of thing. I mean, we've, we've had Supreme Court justices appointed and confirmed in election years, in lame duck sessions. Uh, I mean, you name it. Uh, you know, what this sort of uh, boils down to is, you know, is the president able to, con- to nominate somebody? Yeah. Is the Senate able to take it up? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's all there is to it. Um, and, and so, you know, to, to these claims that, oh, this is irregular, this is invalid, it's, um, uh, uh, what's the word that keeps getting batted around? Um, illegitimate. Uh, it's, it's not. This is just the yeah, way that, the that uh, this process works. And see, that's what ticked me off about the whole, the whole process because it just showed how dishonest those on the left are because they were telling lies, and they know they were lies. I mean, they would say that um, our president was racist and he, he declined or hesitated to, to condemn racism or that he was racist, and they know he's done this many times and it's, it's documented and on video that he denounced, you know, all these people, but they, they continue to lie. And uh, it's no wonder why Congress has a low, you know, approval rating. <laughs> Can't trust these guys. Yeah, we saw a lot of that during the confirmation hearing, too. The uh, senators, the Democratic senators, were trying to distort Amy Coney Barrett's record. Uh, they would try to take cases she had written and say that they said something when they said nothing of the kind. Uh, but mm-hmm. again, when when um, Amy Coney Barrett was sitting there listening to these attacks and these distortions of her record, she she was, uh, you know, calm, collected, graceful, and she just said, "No, you're wrong, and here's yeah. why." Right. And it was really amazing, and she was able to to do all of that. They would name a case, and, and now she's participated in 600 cases just since she's been on the bench three years, 600 cases, and she could identify any of them by name, remember all sorts of details about them, including quotes from them and quotes from law review articles she wrote 10 years ago, and all of that without any notes, without any references. She sat there and just did that all off the top of her head and ran intellectual yeah. circles around her critics. She's a prodigy, yeah. But like yeah, I said, I, I think it, the Democrats used that as a springboard to attack our president as well, because they kept, you know, throwing in these little tidbits about, you know, what Trump didn't do or what he failed to do. And and she just told them, you know, pretty much or just ignored what they were saying. But she pretty much said she could not, you know, comment on things that may potentially come before the court. As right. a legal matter, right. and, that's, and they and know that's, that's what they do. They know everyone that comes up as a candidate for the Supreme Court like that um, has to say that. But they would put it in the papers as though she's, uh, you know, trying her best to be evasive and and like that. That's something uncommon or something. And they know every right. every person that comes before them um, to be considered for the Supreme Court. Um, has to say that they, they can't comment on anything that might might come before them as a case. Right, that's exactly right. And then with the, every every nominee has done that since the very first uh, public 
hearing, which was Felix Frankfurter, uh, 81 years ago. And so every nominee has, has taken that same position. So no senator is surprised when they get that answer. They're only pretending. Now, what was the uh, the reason for the senator from Hawaii asking sexually explicit questions? What was the purpose of that, of asking that of a married woman, mother of seven? Uh, I mean, that was gross. I, You know, she... I, I think this grew out of, of the Kavanaugh hearing where they tried to smear him with uh, those unproven allegations. And now uh, she makes a point of asking it to every nominee uh, that comes before her, but especially to Amy Coney Barrett. It was gross. Her children were sitting right there. Uh, and there's no reason that e- even if that even if you think that question is important and, you know, absent some evidence that you have a basis to ask that question. It's not, it's just, it's just politics at its worst. But, but even if you thought that that question should be asked, it should have been asked in the written question. It didn't have to be blasted on national television in front of her children. You know, some of the questions that you heard being asked of her, I just sat there just shaking my head, like where out of left field did this come? And the very thing that you just mentioned on what factual basis are you asking that question? I think that would be something I would have turned around to the senator and said, uh, Madam Senator, is there a factual basis that you're asking that question? Is there an allegation I am unaware of? Yeah, yeah, that 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 would have been a, uh, a good way to sort of throw it back at her. But I think what Amy Coney Barrett's strategy was was uh, not was to not rock the boat as much as possible, as satisfying as it would have been to throw that back in Senator Hirano's face. I think that uh, letting it linger uh, so that everyone could just see how gross that was, was uh, probably the safest strategy. Yeah. But there were times she was real feisty and she would get back at him. You know, you're trying to get me to listen, or you're trying to get me to say that. And, you know, I just can't do that. I like the responses. Yep. Yeah. She was firm. Uh, firm and graceful, and uh, when, when uh, especially on legal questions, constitutional questions, or distortions of her record, she wasn't going to let anyone either either uh, get her in some kind of trap or uh, say falsehoods. You know, I, I I see her as being a gem on the bench, um, but getting off of her just for a split second, um, I have been hearing small rumblings about something going on with the. Justice Roberts, um, are we seeing going to see him step down or anything? You know, I haven't heard anything like that. Uh, no indication uh, from me that that he would. He's still re- uh, relatively young, um, and I think that uh, he's got uh, a lot of a lot of um, years left that he can that he can do the job. So this is news to me. I just something I heard in the wind. It may not be just it may just be a rumor or whatever, but something I heard in the wind is that uh, something is going to pop up from his past, and that will cause him to step down. Huh? Well, you've got you've got better uh, better spies than I do. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Listen, I well, heard that you do a podcast. 
Yes, my my colleague Amy Swearer and I uh, run a podcast called SCOTUS 101, and we just cover uh, everything to do with the Supreme Court. So we just put out uh, an episode this morning uh, covering the confirmation hearings. And where can people find that? Uh, anywhere you find uh, podcasts, from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, and on the Heritage website. It's called SCOTUS 101. Wow. <clears throat> Curtis, you were going to ask a question. Go ahead. I just want to make sure I got the podcast out for him so I do a little advertising. <laughs> I appreciate I that. Re- <laughs> I can't even remember now. <laughs> it was really oh. a comment, but I can't remember what it was going to be. But, <laughs> hey, you know, I do I do think she's going to be confirmed. And um, this was the last day, right, if I'm correct? Yes, Today was the last day, yeah. and we had uh, uh, yesterday, actually, I think one of the best pieces of testimony you can watch, I think, is from uh, Laurel Walk. And Laurel Walk, actually, we're going to have her on, uh, on the podcast next week, but she's blind. She's the first blind woman ever to clerk at the Supreme Court. And wow. uh, she tells the story, yeah, about how Judge Barrett was just instrumental in getting her there. And it's really, I mean, it's a beautiful heartwarming story about just what kind of person judge Barrett really is and all. And I, I, I encourage you to watch it because, you know, it's always better to hear the story straight, straight from the source, but I'll, I'll give you a, just a preview. So she, she, she went to Notre Dame where, uh, where Amy Coney Barrett was a professor and she was having a lot of problems uh, on her first day because she's blind. The university didn't have the technology that she needed to read uh, books and things. Uh, her own personal laptop had uh, gone on the fritz, so she was just really struggling to keep up with other students. And she went to Amy Coney Barrett's office hours and uh, just sort of poured her heart out and said, look, I'm having such a hard time. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm behind in everything, and I don't know what, what to do about this problem. And Amy Coney Barrett uh, leaned in and said, you know, this, this problem is not your problem anymore. It's my problem. And she took care of it. She got all the technology she needed. Uh, she got her up to speed. She took time to mentor her. And uh, they've been close mentors ever since. And uh, just this beautiful story about, you know, how much she cares. I mean, she's had thousands of students, and she will put in the effort to take care of and mentor every one of them. You know, there was a lot of a lot of wonderful stories about Amy Comey Barrett, and <clears throat> I think it drove the left crazy that you could find that someone that is a conservative, part of that DNA of being a conservative is the willingness to give up self, no matter what it is. And they don't understand that. They think in order to be someone that does good, you've got to be a liberal. No, we don't talk about what we do. We just do it. And that, I think, is the big difference between the two sides. Yeah, I think there's something to that. And the focus that conservatives have on individuality, you know, one individual doing a good thing for one person rather than taking a sort of collective approach to, you know, doing good means, you know, reinventing society and, you know, a political image. But no, doing good is just one person. Uh, making a sacrifice to help somebody else. And that's what we see uh, in Amy Coney Barrett's life, be it uh, adopting children from Haiti, uh, going above and beyond for her students, 
um, I, I, an interview I saw with a friend of hers said, uh, you can't out-care Amy Coney Barrett. You can't out-love Amy Coney Barrett. You can't out-friend Amy Coney Barrett. And you sure as heck can't out-smart Amy Coney Barrett. <laughs> I would like to friend her. Was, my mom and I were watching, and she, my mom fell in love with her. She was, and she's Catholic? Yes, Mom. She's not Italian. She's Catholic. <laughs> you got to screw that in. I swear, my grandmother probably is looking down from heaven, getting ready to hit me with her wooden arm. True story, my grandmother had a wooden arm. And when wow. she got mad at you, she swung it. <laughs> but I got to tell you, you know, growing up, and you understand being Italian, growing up, I'm only half, but growing up, it can be... You can write a lot of good comedy books about things that go up and grow <laughs> in the <laughs> Catholic household. And I, I tell people, this is one of my favorite sayings my grandmother had. She went and she called me Anuch. She goes, Anuch, Avenica. She goes, the only difference between an Italian and a Jew, I tell you. She goes, the only difference be we put the tomato in our chicken soup. True story. <laughs> The only difference we put tomato in a chicken soup, but it has been, Jean. It's been a it's been a blast. We've got to have you back on. Tell Tom to keep on sending you on over. You know, you and Hans von is also fantastic. Anyone that Tom sends me, I have so much fun with you guys. Heritage <laughs> Foundation is a great foundation. As a matter of fact, the restaurant that we go to for our tea party meetings, uh, whenever we leave him a couple of dollars, because he opens up after hours, he puts out water and stuff, we leave him a couple of bucks to pay for it. He ends up sending it to the Heritage Foundation, believe it or not. Wow, what a, what a generous thing. Yes. So I'm telling people, check you out over at heritage.org. Check out your, your podcast with the SCOTUS 101. Uh, it's been a blast. We've had so much fun today. Oh, me too. Anytime. All right. God bless and keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Take care. All right. Check out at heritage.org. There is a link to his profile over on the show page. So just scroll down to uh, Gene's name uh, at Heritage and click on it and, and follow him there, as well as checking out the podcast. Curtis, this show has gone by so fast. We're down to our last five I minutes. Know. It just seems like we were just talking about how fast the show went, and it's gone. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I know we've got yeah, I know we've got guests lined up for uh, next week, um, but I didn't put them up on the Internet yet. I apologize. I don't have up next week's show, um, but I don't even remember who we booked for next week. But we've got people lined up, and we will be talking about this uh, Biden uh, <laughs> scandal unfolding. Biden so Hunt, we've got... Yeah. Yeah, it's Benghazi Biden, Beijing Biden, Burisma Biden, Jim Crow Joe. Oh my goodness! I mean, how many (laughs) 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 nursing home Joe? (laughs) (laughs) Oh man! But um, (laughs) I I think that's just about all we got for the day. Unless you got something new, Um, you're up in Philadelphia. Biden country. Uh, so I hope I'm you have going. a safe. Yeah. I, 
I'm just looking for something to close out the show with. Uh, and I, there's a specific song I want to use if I can find it. Oh, here we go. Gary Pecorella. I got to, I've got to play this song for my mom because, um, I have on the back of my car a little bumper sticker from Heritage, no, Hillsdale, from Hillsdale, saying, I stand for the flag. Uh, And my mom turns around, she goes, I stand for the flag, I kneel at the cross. And I said, Mom, there's a song out there. There's a song out there that was written by a friend of the show, Gary Pecorella, and it's called... So that is going to be our closing song, Curtis. How does that sound? Sounds great to me. All right, so check out Gary Pecorella, Save America. So until then, I say good night, God bless, and everyone have a safe, healthy, and happy weekend. The nuts are out there, so be on the alert. Until then, if I can hit the right key.